This podcast may contain adult humor, foul language, and graphic nudity. Please be advised. In other words, you're probably going to have a good time. Welcome to the nest. I look real good today. 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 Jumping out the mother Bentley. TJ, what is happening? Another episode from the nest. Nest on the road. Look at us. Yep, taking things on the road. Taking things on the road. How well, are you doing, Colin? Pretty good. It's been it's been a little while. It has. But you know, it feels good to be back. Back in the saddle. It's like riding a bike. I never learned how to ride a bike, but if I did, I feel like it would be Well, it's because your dad took the seat off of it, and that's the way you try to ride it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got our manager back with us. Uh Mr. John Wehrberg, my dad. Glad to be back. Yeah, we got a very special guest, Mr. Monroe County, Mr. Von Meyer, the the uh, Bartisan, Bar Artisan, I don't know what they're calling, Mixologist. Mixologist, is that what I'm what thinking I heard. of? Yes. All right, yeah. He can do it all. I don't have a hand. That's all. a lot of compliments. I don't know if I can live up to that, but I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be good. It'll be good. Now a word from our sponsors. Well, Colin, as usual, Holton Meats is sponsoring uh, this episode. Um, go back and listen to episode number three when we talked to Greg himself, and he tells you how the whole thing started. But uh, go to Deerberg's or Schnooks, Walmart, Gordon Foods, and Aldi's and pick up some of their fine products. Um, like I've said a million times, if you haven't gotten them by now, you're not tired of us talking about them, shame on you because they're good stuff. Yeah. Absolutely love those Holton burgers. We actually had a little conversation. We've got some fun things planned for Greg coming up here. So hopefully you guys will be a part of that soon and have a good time with us. Uh, we also have the uh, fine ladies at Renew Mind and Body. Um, they do everything out there. I mean, you name it, any kind of whole health, they can do it. I mean, they do the blood testing. They do massages, fitness um, they do the hydrotherapy loungers, the infrared saunas, the foot detox, the floats. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, and they are just absolutely incredible. Um, and don't forget to mention that if you go in there and you said you're from the nest, you get that 10% off of the, uh, the foot detox, the hydrotherapy lounger, the sauna, and the floats. Yep. They do great work there. Yeah. Well, let's, let's get into our drink of the week here real quick, TJ. You know, I mentioned the mixologist. We have Mr. Brad Rilfmeyer, the king of the Manhattan. And obviously, <laughs> you know, me, TJ, my dad, we are big bourbon guys. And this, I mean, is just incredible. Absolutely incredible, Rip. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, Sandra and I, I don't know how many years ago it was, but we had our first Manhattan. And um, we both decided, man, that's something that we might have to try making at home a little more often, and it's become our favorite little nightcap on a Friday or Saturday night. Not often we have them on Thursday nights at <laughs> seven o'clock, like <laughs> you guys are tonight. But that's all right. That's all right. It's it's usually a nine thirty, ten o'clock thing on a Friday or Saturday night. But yeah, it's yeah. good. Usually when it comes to <clears throat> Manhattan's old fashioned, I like to have a couple and then I'm done. Well, we were just talking. About two years ago, pretty similar to like a day like this, we we came back here, and for life of me, can't think of what it was for, but we came back here, and you were making Manhattan's, and you had these um, chocolates that had some kind of either strawberry or cherry or something. They're phenomenal, and so I'm just 
having a great time pounding these back. The next day was my first day at my old job. And let me tell you, I struggled very, very hard. They, they can sneak up on you. That is the bad thing. They go down so smooth. If, if, they're, if they're made right, they go down so smooth. And, um, yeah, you feel like, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine. And uh, you wake up the next day and say, oops. Um, you know the saying, and I guess I can say it, uh, the saying is they're like boobs. Um, <laughs> one is not enough, but three is too many. And um, <laughs> yeah, the, the, if you have three, then you usually feel it the next day. So. And I got I to gotta brag on Brad here. So um, the guy that's the bartender for uh, Bill DeWitt and the owner's suite for the Cardinals, he always brags, I got the best Manhattan around. And I said, you know what? I'm not sure you do. I said, my assistant coach, Brad Rippelmeyer, I think does. So we have a bourbon club, and we uh, we had a challenge. We had a Manhattan challenge, and uh, the votes came in, and Brad beat the owner of the uh, suite, uh, the Bill DeWitt suite and the Cardinals. And the funny thing about it, Aaron moved down to Valmire, and he goes, I'm, I'm not even the king of Valmire. <laughs> I can't even win that, so... So Brad reigns supreme in that area. Uh, now you're also the king of Bloody Marys, correct? Well, um, I've been told my Bloody Marys are pretty good, but I can't take credit for those because I got that recipe from my dad, and he was the king well before me, and I guess he passed the torch. He, he never drank Manhattans. I don't think I ever saw him drink a brown liquor. Um, but he drank what are called Monroe County martinis, which are half gin, half vodka with a twist, <laughs> oh. which is pretty harsh. It's really like rubbing alcohol, but um, he drank those and he drank Bloody Marys. And um, so I was never a Bloody Mary fan, um, but my sisters, every, anybody who had dads always bragged about them. And then my wife and I get married, she starts drinking them and she's telling me they're the best things ever. And one day, probably eight, 10 years ago, she said, um, look, I don't care if you ever drink a Bloody Mary, but you need to learn how to make your dad's because he's not going to be here forever. So three Sundays in a row, we had him come up and he and I stood up in the kitchen, all the ingredients, and we made Bloody Mary's. And after the third week, um, I don't want to say I had mastered it, but I had gotten pretty good at making them. And after the third week, I also liked drinking them <laughs> with, with all the testing and him kind of showing me, oh, it needs a little more of this or a little more than that. And I would test it. After three weeks, I was like, you know, Bloody Marys aren't too bad. And so um, now, now I make them for the family and make them whenever anybody requests them. So, Oh, yeah. I, I was the exact same way. I hated Bloody Marys. I'm just not a big tomato guy. I don't yep. really like ketchup, tomato juice, you name it. It's just not a fan of. And then I can't remember, because it was two or three years ago. I don't know whenever you started making them up at, at St. Baldrick's. Yeah. 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 Um, I was having a real rough morning, and Alex is like, hey, man, I don't have anything going right now, but Rip's got these Bloody Marys. I'm like, well, shit, I guess that'll have to do. And I had them. Like, I think I ended up having like three of them. Like, these are so freaking good. They are the same way. They're kind of dangerous because you can't taste any alcohol at all, and it's a good mix of sweet and spicy, and all of a sudden, yeah, you've had two or three. <laughs> yeah. It happens pretty easy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, and we had mentioned that on our last podcast with uh, Alex and uh, the Woofles that you're going to be up there again this St. Baldrick's. Yep. Um, and that date's coming up here. I mean, it's flying up on us. Yeah, real April quick 6th. Here. Yeah, just about a month away. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah, one more quick note about, because I know we're going to talk about baseball and this 
is part of that. But one one day after dad had taught me how to make them, it's a couple years later, and I was at his house having a Bloody Mary with dad. I said, dad, where'd you get this recipe? Everybody raves around it, but I've never heard where you got it or how you started making them. And he sat there and thought for a second, and he said, Steve Carlton. And I said, what? He goes, yep. Uh, back, back when Steve, when I was with the Phillies, um, Steve wanted to come visit our pig farm one off season cause he had never been on a farm before cause Carlton was raised in California. And, um, so he came up for a long weekend, came to Valmeyer and he stayed at our farmhouse. And on Sunday morning, before we took him to the airport, he made us all bloody Mary's and we liked him so much that I went back to him and said, Steve, you got to get me that recipe. And he said, that's the recipe I've been using ever since. Wow, so, so in our shit. house, we now, so once he told me that story, we started referring, referring to them as Bud's Hall of Fame Bloody Marys because, um, yeah, that is incredible. named after yeah. Steve Carlton and Hall of yeah. Famer. So. <laughs> wow, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, that's good awesome. stuff. And that's only a taste of some of the stories that we're going to get here and yeah, yeah. <laughs> in here tonight. <laughs> Uh, but before we get into that, um, St. Baldrick's coming up, like TJ had mentioned, um, and we're still got our competition going. How are you doing? Uh, not good. Not good. How I are you doing? I'm at $100. I'm at 220 Oh, wow. I got to pick it up. Yeah. I got to get my advertising out there. Apparently. Yeah. Um, listen, all of our listeners, both of you, if you each <laughs> donate five bucks, that'll help. I mean, it's all going to cancer research for kids. Um, at the bottom of this episode on Facebook, we'll put our links again. And, uh, I mean, I'll gonna, put my link up there. Yeah. Just if you got 10 bucks, six to me, four to Colin, that'd be great. Um, but we're trying to see who raises the most money. Are you even growing anything out? Uh, once, once we do our, uh, fit testing for our mask, I'm going to grow my two facial days after. Oh, well, I guess I should start That's growing out I'm my facial hair right now then. Yeah. All right. Good to know. And All right. So I'll get that going. Yeah. Right. I mean, I'm not throwing anything shave up, or up top. Cut your hair. Yeah. <laughs> cut, cut, don't cut either one of your hair. Yeah. Nothing nope. to do with that, Colin. <laughs> no, absolutely. It also has nothing to do with the last time I did it. I put nair in my head and, yeah. Oh, no. Any day it'll grow back. No. So back in eighth grade, uh, my uncle got diagnosed with cancer. And so I shaved my head. And as a young eighth grader, I'm not knowing anything. And so my sister, she goes, hey, if you really want to get bald, put nair on it. It's like, all right, cool. Like, I don't know what Nair is, so I put Nair in there. She doesn't tell me that they take it off after a couple minutes. I don't know, 15 minutes. I had chemical burns all over my head. I, I'll tell you what, I had the reddest hair, like Tennessee orange red hair, and it's been strawberry blonde damn near ever since. It, it never grew back the it same. It glows. It literally glows now. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh. Forever tainted. Yeah. I, I have bad – anytime I smell that, I get a little – little thing crawl up my back it makes me a little nervous maybe you should try it on your back i see i don't have a hairy back oh okay not that we need to go into that no no i was just assuming <laughs> i was hoping you had hair somewhere so uh, oh no, no okay different 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 yeah. Topic. yeah and also don't forget about queen hearts every thursday up at aces um we're up over six thousand dollars now um, like I always say, we always see the same crowd it's a good crowd but uh, it'd be nice to see some new faces every once in a while and uh Come up and support the fire department and the wherever that money's going to. Yep, we haven't we haven't figured that out yet, but uh, the money's definitely going back to the community in some way. Um, don't know if that's going to be scholarships or through different fundraisers or um, through different charities. We don't know yet, but it's definitely going back to the community. So you're really giving back to um, 
people that are disabled maybe, or maybe the youth in our community. You know, there's a whole lot of things that we give our money to. So we, you come up and help us and we'll, uh, we're helping out the community. And you might win $6,000. Yeah. And it's growing fast. Ever since that one in Waterloo went out, we've been growing real fast. Yeah. All right, Colin, should we get to our guest, I guess? Yeah, I guess. (laughs) Or do you want, or no, what was your story? My story? You said you had something. Oh, no, that, so, you know how a couple weeks ago I talked about our sponsor, potential sponsor, yeah, the, yeah. the vodka. Well, I, uh, I, I may have had a couple uh, old fashions in me, and I messaged them again. Okay. So I said, hey, because they weren't messaging me back, I said, hey, if you're not going to message me, I'm going to Tito's. Oh. I'm, I'm a big vodka sound. So I mentioned, hey, I'm going to Tito's, and whoever gets here first. <laughs> well, and Bert was a big Tito's guy before. Yeah. Yep. Double Tito's Club, hold the ice. Or hold Did they the respond? No. You'd be shocked. They did not respond to that one either. Yeah, I can't believe it. <laughs> yeah. didn't take well to the threatening message. No, they, they, surprisingly, um, I also sent one to Zen. You know, we're both big Zen guys. Yeah. Oh. Very healthy for you. Oh. Yeah. And I sent another email to Marquita Jones the other day. Yeah, she answered you? No, she hasn't answered me. Oh. <laughs> Brad, I don't know if you've ever seen Makita Jones, but you need to look her up sometime. She oh, is yeah. a riot. Her, okay. her life is... <clears throat> A roller coaster. Yeah. I don't even know how to begin to describe we, it. We play her on almost every episode. Okay. She is, she is a train wreck. <laughs> yeah. A, a train wreck is putting it extremely nicely. Yeah. But enough about all that. Rip, let's get to you. The man of the hour, the man of the night, the man of the year. Let's okay. let's go all the yeah. way. So let, let's start. Very beginning, you know, growing up, what is that like for you? Um, so I kind of had two separate lives um i was born and raised in valmeyer and half the year was just like any other kid in a really small little town and grew up on a farm um but my dad was the pitching coach for the phillies in the major league so um every spring i would go to florida for a week and spend a week with him and go to the ball games every day be around the phillies clubhouse and so forth um, and then whenever the Cardinals would be hosting the Phillies, dad would be home. If they were in Chicago, we would go up there for, um, for a long weekend or, or whatever. And then 1st of June, literally, we would get out of school. And sometimes that afternoon, my mom would have the station wagon packed and we would drive to Philadelphia. And then I would spend two and a half or three months in Philadelphia until it was time to come back to school again. And for those two and a half, three months, then I was the son of a big leaguer. And, and I went to the ballpark every day with dad at course not when I was two or three but by the time I was old enough to do anything and so I was in the clubhouse and on the field just doing those things every and then watch the game every single night um, and then in the fall come back home and back to the small town Valmeyer kid again yeah and so dad retired when I was eight uh, or his last year with the Phillies I was eight so by the time by the time I was seven or eight I was old enough to to really be able to appreciate it and enjoy being on the field every day and recognize how good those guys were and knew that's what I wanted to do. That's all I wanted to do. I wanted to be a big league ball player. Um, so it was, I mean, man, it, it couldn't have been any better. I have some great memories of being um, around those guys and being able to do some pretty cool, some pretty cool things. Um, you know, I, I remember 
a couple things stand out to me. I remember in 77, the Phillies clinched the division. Back then, there was just an Eastern and Western division. Um, and the Phillies were in the East, and they clinched the division against the Cubs in at Wrigley Field. And Dad pulled me out of the stands and took me into the clubhouse, which I always did after the games were over. I always went back in the clubhouse and waited for Dad to get ready and, and so forth. And um, But on, it was surprising that day because he yanked me out of the stands and they had just clinched the division. So we go up into the clubhouse, and just like you see any celebration on TV, there's champagne flowing and all the guys just hooting That's and hollering awesome. going crazy. And I'll, I'll always remember I was standing next to Dad's locker and Tim McCarver comes over to me and he just starts pouring champagne on my head. And again, I'm seven <laughs> and, and I'm, you know, I'm laughing or whatever, you know, and I, I, that still stands out to me this day. I, because of course, years and years, you see Tim McCarver doing everything from playing to being on TV and broadcasting and whatever. So, um, yeah, so it's pretty, pretty cool. Um, the next year, one of my favorite memories, I was eight years old and, um, dad took me on a couple road trips. Um, and so I traveled on the team plane and the team bus and the whole, the whole deal. And at, at that time I was, whenever dad would hit me fly balls himself, like we would go out at noon at veteran stadium in Philadelphia and he would hit me little fly balls. I had no problem catching fly balls, but, and then I would be on the field during batting practice and I could never catch a fly ball when somebody actually hit it live off the bat. I could not judge it. And usually I, as soon as I saw it hit, I would run in and then it would be 30 feet over my head. So starting in spring training, I'm out every day trying to shag and BP off these big leaguers and never caught a ball, never caught a ball, never caught a ball. And of course, dad would take me out before and hit little fly balls and I could catch them piece of cake, but not off an actual big league guy. So um, we go to the uh, we go to Houston, and at the time they're playing in the Astrodome, which was a big deal just to go to the Astrodome because it was at that time one of a kind, you know. And so we're going out for early batting practice. Dad threw early batting practice a lot because he liked to throw, and um, and so the there were three guys taking early batting practice that day: Steve Carlton, because Carlton loved to hit on his off days, um, Bob Boone, and Mike Schmidt. Wow. And there, and dad's throwing, and there's one other coach there that had come out just to kind of help shag. Um, and so dad sends me out to left field. And in hindsight, I look back and think, what, what person in his right mind sends an eight-year-old <laughs> by himself out to left field when Mike, Mike Schmidt's Schmidt. taking yeah. batting practice, you know? <laughs> and years later, I would look back, whether it was, you know, seeing my nieces or even my kids, and look at them at eight years old and think, there's no chance I'm putting them out there. You know, they're going to yeah. get killed. And I, I, but that wasn't, a, I guess, wasn't a thing, you know, wasn't anything to worry about back then. Dad's like, all right, you're out there. So I go out there. And at some point, Mike Schmidt hits a line drive. Um, and I'm, instead of running in, I think because it was a line drive, I was just kind of frozen. And so I didn't run in and I, I'm just there. And at the last second, stick out my glove caught it wow line drive off mike schmidt in left field. that's your first catch that was my first catch off a lot so then uh so 
so I, I'm kind of in shock, and but I'm obviously excited. And I look up, and they're hooting and hollering. And I think Dad, which hardly ever showed any emotion, I think he's on the mound, you know, jumping up and down. Mike Schmidt's jumping up and down. It was, <laughs> it was crazy, but it was an awesome memory. So then a few minutes later, Bob Boone hit one, and I caught two that day. So I was so excited. And then the rest of that summer, whenever I was out uh, shagging, I wasn't perfect by any means, but I started catching more and more. And, um, yeah, it was Awesome stuff, awesome stuff. Um, then later that year, the Phillies won again. This time they won in Pittsburgh. And again, dad pulled me in and, um, you know, I'm in the, in the locker room and there's champagne everywhere. I remember they were, these are big league, like grown men, but they just do the stupidest stuff. And I remember they were sitting on the trays that they bring all the uh, lunch meat and everything out on, like basically cookie sheets. And they were using those as sleds and pushing each other around in the in the champagne on the on the slick linoleum floor in the champagne. I was just circus, but wow, yeah. But all man, yeah, great memories. Um, so so then Dad retired, um, and he came home to run our family farm. And so that's when I was starting when I was nine, and then I was. Um, definitely just a normal small town kid. I mean, other, other than occasionally when the Phillies would come to town and we'd get the chance to go over and he'd see some of his old buddies. Um, I was no longer a big leaguer son anymore. I was just a farm boy from Thalmeyer. Yeah. Um, that's a big difference going from, I mean, that's a huge going from being a major league kid, going over to Philadelphia, spend your summers there to, Hey, now my dad runs a farm and I'm true Thalmeyer fashion, you yeah. know, small town it was um I I was just telling somebody this um last summer I think we did a podcast for um fathers and sons of Monroe County baseball and and so we were talking about some of these same things and a lot of stories about our dads and so forth and and in in talking about that and kind of getting ready for that I started thinking how lucky I was because um I think what that that really grounded me. Um, if I would have kept growing up and and been in a major league clubhouse all the way through high school and college, I I don't um, I don't know if I would have had the same work ethic or the same appreciation as coming back. And I don't want to say I was humbled, but there 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 was nothing to be bragging about or anything. Like I'm a farm boy from Baumeyer. Like I you know my dad's not in the big leagues anymore, so it's time to get down to work. And in turn, I saw him work every day. He, he busted his ass on the farm. We had 2,500 pigs and 2,500 acres that we farmed. And so it was seven days a week. I watched him get up and bust his ass. And so I think observing that as I was going through those real formative years versus if we would have been really wealthy and he's in the big leagues and I'm going there every year. I just don't know. I don't know what my attitude would have been like, but um, I know growing up down there, living on a farm and watching him work, it it certainly shaped who I am. So, and I'm happy about that. Oh, for sure. I mean, you kind of got that little taste for it, and then just enough to remember it and to love it, just to get it taken, not taken away, but pretty much taken away, and then you strive to. I mean, I think you're 100% right. That creates a stronger work ethic to reach that goal again. Yeah, I think it did. And, and it, it allowed me to grow up around all those people in Valmeyer and be around them a hundred percent of the time, which, um, you know, most of the people down there don't let you get 
um, too too high on yourself. You no, know, they're, absolutely they're not. Pretty straightforward. And my buddies that I grew up with weren't gonna let you think that you were that good. So it was, yeah, it was probably really good and probably helped. Um, yeah, like I said, it helped shape the way I am. So, but also with that, with working on the farm and stuff. Do you think that back then when the Stan Musials and the Red Chainings and all those guys had to have jobs in the offseason because they didn't make the money that they do today, I mean, that gave them natural strength yeah. as opposed to the guys today that do all of the bands and everything. I mean, do you think that that kind of work helped with injuries and stuff? Well, You I, don't hear about yeah. injuries like that back then. I think um... – man, we could do a whole podcast just on the injury thing and what kids are going through these days versus what they did back then. But I think a lot of things played into it. I think, um, yes, people grew up in a different environment and they had to work and do things daily that probably gave, gave them the kind of strength we used to call country strength, right. you know, and, and instead of weightlifting strength. And I think they didn't play baseball or any one sport year round and constantly because they were doing other things and they had to do other things. And so all those things probably contributed to them being maybe a little more well-rounded and maybe not as susceptible to injuries, you, you know, um, definitely different. I mean, when I see pictures of some of those guys, um, Lou Gehrig and Stan Musial and Ted Williams, man, their arms, again, not not weightlifting kind of strong, like not yeah. the way Mark McGuire looks, certainly, but, I mean, just ripped, like, these these thin, tight, strong guys, you know? <laughs> and um, I, I think guys that are built like that probably less susceptible to injuries than maybe the guys who work out like crazy, and especially if they're only playing one sport and kind of – the repetitiveness that we see sometimes with kids these days, but certainly. Yeah, and the thing that impressed me with you is when you got honored, uh, the Valmar Hall of Fame and our basketball team came out there and they're going over all this, you know, you were the top basketball rebounder scorer and he was in how many Valmar plays. And I mean, it was just so cool that you were so well-rounded. I mean, it even wasn't just sports. Yeah. You're like, you know, at that stage you did whatever it took at a school that size to stay involved. Yeah. Well, I, you know, and that, that goes Back to what I was talking about before. I mean, Valmeyer, um, pretty pretty small school. Obviously, my graduating class was 34, and so if everybody in the school didn't participate in everything, then we just couldn't do it. You know, so we we had so we probably had 120, 130 kids in our high school. I bet we had 100 kids in chorus. Now, not. <laughs> All of us could sing, but it was just kind of known that, hey, you got to high school and you were you went in the course. You know, very few kids didn't because there was just this understanding that, man, we all have to do this or else it just goes away. And um, so, yeah, you just got involved in everything. And again, it was it it took a group effort, not just on the kids, but the teachers and the coaches, too, because they all had to understand, hey, I I can't demand that. um like our coach, Coach Socek, would let us leave basketball practice for 10 minutes to go practice the national anthem with the choir if, the national, if we were going to sing the national anthem before the game the next night or whatever, you know. And he just knew, I've got to let these guys go do this for 10 minutes because if I don't, then, no, then, we, don't, then they, we don't have a national anthem, you know. And it, so it was just this understanding that everybody's got to give a little bit and it's not going to be perfect, unlike – some of the bigger schools now, it would just be like, hey, you either choose. You're either in the choir or you're on the basketball right. team. You yeah. know? And so, I, again, I was lucky we got to do all that stuff and experience it because 
um, yeah, I'm probably probably better for it in some way. I don't I don't know if singing in the choir helps me out that much now, but um, but probably oh, probably yeah. so. Hum a few bars. I, I do. See. I, <laughs> I do got to tell you a quick Brad Ripplemeyer story. So oh, no. my my first year coaching anything was I did Valmar softball. Well, Brad is a freshman. I know nothing about this kid, but they go, "Have you heard about this Ripplemeyer kid?" I'm like, "No." And uh, we so the the baseball and the softball team always rode the same bus. And I remember the softball team gets on, and all of a sudden these kids get on. This big strapping kid gets on, confident. I was like, "Who the hell is that?" And they're like, "That's Ripplemeyer." I went. That kid's a freshman, and to this day, I've never seen a freshman carry himself the way Brad did. I'm like, oh, my God. I mean, he was something else, and we we had a moment. It's still one of the funniest stories ever. So we go to Westminster Academy, and um, the girls' softball team, gets, we're over, and we're just kind of collecting our equipment. Well, here comes Brad and a couple of kids running over, and like, Coach, we need you to coach our baseball team. What do you mean? Well, Coach Sochek was the only coach he got kicked out, so we need a coach. So I come running over. I said, I'm here, I'm here. And umpire's like, no, no, it's over. It's over. So Sochek starts going crazy. And all I'm doing, in fact, Brad and I are kind of sitting together and, and just watching. And next thing I know, he goes over. He goes, points to Sochek. He goes, I'm putting you on probation. And he points to me. He goes, I'm putting you on probation. I went, I didn't say anything. He goes, I don't care. Next day, they they had a, what was the superintendent's name? Was it? Uh, Bomb. Bob he- Bob Hevener. Bob Hevener. Yeah. He calls me into the office. He goes, I don't know what the hell went down. He's got a big stogie. He would literally go around the hallways smoking a cigar. Smoke cigar all day long. School. Oh my I, god. I, no, this Times is honestly a little. He goes, Young man, you're just starting your education career. He goes, I just got a letter that you've been put on probation by the state of Illinois for one year. I went, What? And that's the true story. I literally got put on probation my very first year for one year by the state of Illinois for doing absolutely nothing. Wow. But and that that was crazy. And then your uh, first memory of me. That is my my first memory it's is this, this big yeah. So, <laughs> but I, I will tell you this: I'm not. I, I've never seen a freshman that carried himself like Brad did. I mean, it was like a senior. I, I could not believe that kid was a freshman. Yeah. Well, I think attitude has a lot to play into that. Um, and TJ, you kind of mentioned that some of these older guys that they had to have these second jobs and you have these major league players that came from small towns that where you had to do everything. Like you said, there's a huge attitude difference because we've been extremely lucky that we've met tons and tons of tons of not only older, but younger major league players, in baseball, football, wrestling, hockey, you name it. And there's a huge difference. I mean, you could tell because some of those older guys, I mean, I was very lucky where I had, a pretty good relationship with Rhett Shandy's and that man will talk to you about anything and everything. Yeah. Mainly. I mean, if you talked about, um, hunting. down at hunting, he, duck hunting or down at SEMO, we went to the same bar down at SEMO, <laughs> but I mean, yeah, you talk about those two things. I mean, he was so funny. He talked about duck hunting and not to get off topic, but you talk about duck hunting and you'd have to wake him up and he'd immediately go up, pop a couple and fall right back to sleep. Um, but some of these younger guys, they just think that they're entitled. And I think that has a lot to do of kind of like you said, where they were raised either super wealthy or in the um, major league organization through a family member. And now they think that they're almost better than everybody else or guaranteed a spot. Yeah. Yeah. You know, even the, whether it's AAU and basketball or the select stuff, they all the kids get coddled to a certain 
extent of, you know, 10 years old, hey, you're, you're the best, here's all brand new equipment, all brand new uniforms and everything. And, and you know, that's fine. I, 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 the last thing I want to do is take away anything, you know, from kids today and, and sound like one of those old people that says, oh, kids today, you know, I don't, I don't want to do that. But I do think the kids have a lot more um, opportunity now and they don't maybe have to work as much for the opportunity. It's kind of thrown at them. And so then that maybe allows them to take it for granted a little bit, which is just kind of natural, you know. Um, and we didn't, we just didn't have that. So that's true. Um, yeah. Well, going back to your dad a little bit. Um, so he was the pitching coach and for the Phillies and also for the Mets farm system, right? So he was the major league pitching coach for the Phillies um, from 70 to 78. He, he, um, so he, he signed in 1953 and, and then was in pro ball all throughout until 1978, you know, played, played in the minor leagues for 13 years or so, then went into coaching and then was a big league coach for the, he got, he got one win with the Washington senators. I saw he he did. Yeah. (laughs) Got he's, I think his career records one and two. And I think he's, at the plate, he's one for two, maybe. I think he hit 500, um, <laughs> <laughs> one for two. Uh, so, um, he, um, so, he, so he coached up until 78, and my grandfather had passed away right around that time. And as I mentioned, our farm had kind of grown. My uncle and grandfather were, were doing really well on the farm at that time. Farming was a really good industry, and my dad used to joke – you know, because then he decided he had a choice to make, either stay in baseball, stay away from home, or come back and help my uncle run the farm since my grandpa was gone. And I think it was a combination of me getting a little older and starting to get to the age where I was going to play baseball and him wanting to be at home with me, but but also from the family standpoint of I need to be home, work on the farm, and I've been in pro baseball however many years, and you know, that's run its course. I'm, I'm going to do, I'm going to come home and do this. So he retired and he would joke that um, about the time he got out of baseball is when farming went to hell and baseball salaries started going crazy. (laughs) Uh, But he, he made that decision. So, so then he was at home with me for 10 years from the time I was eight until I was 18. When I, the summer before I went back to, or, or went to college, he took a um, kind of a consulting job with the Phillies where he was down in Clearwater and bounced around to their minor league teams for just a couple months. And then the next year was back full time, but actually was with the Reds for two years um, um, in AAA. And so he, he got back into baseball as soon as I went to college. And I think, again, things had kind of reversed. Now I was done. I was no longer at home. My uncle was 10 years older and wanted to start getting out of farming and dad kind of agreed and said, okay, let's start divesting some of the farm and I'm going to go back into baseball. Um, and so then he, w- he worked for the Reds for three or four years, then worked in the minor leagues for the Phillies for another couple of years, and then um, went to the Mets. Yeah, and then was with the Mets in various roles, minor league pitching coach at the end, kind of special assignment scout, consultant, that kind of thing. But, um, yeah, he's with the Mets. 15 years or so wow. till he was in his mid seventies. Wow. I think. Yeah. So yeah. Brad, if I'm correct, when, <clears throat> when the Cardinals traded Carlton to the Phillies, that was your dad, correct? The pitching coach. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know this, it's one of the biggest mistakes the Cardinals ever made. 
And Carlton goes on to a really bad Phillies team, and he wins. He goes 27-10 and 10 for a team that is, I think they win 54, 56 games a year. He almost won half their games. But what I've heard, I may be wrong, but what I've heard is, did you not, was it not your dad that kind of told him the rice, he stuck his hand in the rice to strengthen the arm, and he kind of got him to go back to the slider. That's what I heard. That, that's that, kind of yeah. what I've heard. Is that is this true? Slider. I'm just kind of confirming this. Yeah. So, um, so dad was the pitching coach, and um, the general manager called dad in his hotel room. It was in spring training. Dad was already down in spring training because both players were holding out both Rick wise was the pitcher for the Phillies that was holding out and, and he was the Phillies best pitcher he was at the time. Yeah. And, and if you look at his stats for those couple of years in the early seventies, he was really good. And actually dad will tell you one of the greatest games he ever saw was Rick wise threw a no hitter and hit two home runs in the same game in like 71 or something wow. like that, which is crazy. You, you know, like a Shohei Otani type deal now, but, um, so Rick Wise is holding out for a little more money from the Phillies and Steve Carlton is holding out for a little more money from the Cardinals. And somehow the Cardinals and Phillies came to this agreement that they would trade for each other, but they wanted to get dad's opinion as the pitching coach because again, Rick Wise was his best pitcher. So they, so they called dad and dad said it was middle of the night in, in his hotel in spring training. And um, they, they say, we got the chance to get Steve Carlton from the Cardinals for Rick Wise. What do you think? And Dad said, do it before they change their mind. <laughs> really? <laughs> and so, and the rest is history. <laughs> so, yeah, so they, so they do it. And then talking about the slider. So a couple days later, Steve shows up in spring training with the Phillies. And Dad says, you know, have you been throwing? Are you in good shape? And so forth. And Steve said, yeah, I've been throwing, you know, um, several times a week since uh, January 1st. Because, again, he was from California, so he could do that. He said, I'm, I'm ready to throw, you know, a bullpen today. I'm ready to get going. So they go out to the bullpen, and Steve throws for about 10 minutes. Um, fastball, curveball, and pretty much that's it. Maybe a few change-ups, but does not throw a slider. And so dad says, um, hey, uh, I know that, you know, so great. You look good and so forth. But he goes, how come you're not throwing that slider anymore? He go, dad said, I saw you in double A in Tulsa about five years ago before you came up to the big leagues with the Cardinals. That's when dad was a minor league coach with the Phillies. And he, and he said, you had a, you had a really good slider. And um, so Carlton says, well, when I got to the big leagues, the Cardinals discouraged me from throwing it because they thought it would take away from my other pitches. And they thought my fastball and curveball was good enough and so forth. And uh, dad said, well, I want you to start throwing again. And he said, well, um, are are you sure? Uh, because I, you know, what the Cardinal said and blah, blah, blah. And dad said, that'll only happen if you throw it nonstop. He goes, if you just throw it occasionally and we kind of manage it, he goes, you need to throw it. And he said, well, I didn't realize it was, you know, that you thought it was that good or something. And dad said, well, it's better than any slider I saw in major league baseball last year. Wow. And you're not throwing it. So it's a crime for you not to throw it. So, he started throwing it, and um, yeah, and that the rest was, is history. yeah, the rest is history. I mean, maybe oh, one of the favorite. one of the best sliders that anybody's ever thrown. As far as the exercises, I don't know about, uh, I don't know what Dad had to do with that. I I can tell you that Carlton was a fanatic about exercising and all kinds of odd 
stuff or maybe stuff that was before his time. I remember him and this, he had this trainer named Gus Heffling. They used to clear stuff out in the locker room and do kind of um, jujitsu type exercises and, and stuff. I know it's like strength and um, stretching. And I was again, seven or eight years old and I'm just watching this going, what are these two cats doing? (laughs) You know, but um, so, and I do know the rice thing. Dad had me do that as a kid. I don't know if he taught Carlton or Carlton taught him. I don't know, but there was a lot of different things back then because it just was different. There weights weren't a thing. There was a lot of different ways that guys tried to get stronger and kind of like TJ, we said natural, yeah, natural yeah. strength. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's a pretty good trade-off. I mean, your dad gets a Bloody Mary recipe, and Steve Carlton <laughs> goes to the Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah, it worked out well for both of them. <laughs> for all of us, we're still enjoying the Steve Carlton trade. <laughs> yeah, great stuff. <laughs> so, Rip, going back to you, uh, I know that Pop said that you were kind of a different breed growing up. That he thought that you carried yourself like a senior. But when did you realize yourself that, hey, I'm a little bit better than some of these other kids where I can actually make this dream that I've had since I was a young kid start into a reality? Hmm. Man, I don't know because um, baseball is baseball is so freaking hard and so humbling that just about every time I thought man, I'm, I'm really good at baseball. Well, then I wouldn't be for a while, even, you know, whether that was in eighth grade or a sophomore, whatever it just, so I, I don't know if there was ever a time, um, where I, I thought, um, oh, I definitely am going to make it. I mean, there were, there were always some signs that, that I was pretty good, I guess. And that when I looked around, I, I was, a little better than my buddies or, or what have you. But, um, I, there was never a light bulb moment where I said, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm going to be a pro ball player. It's just, it's all I ever wanted to do. And I, it's all I ever worked toward, even though I was doing all these other things. Like I was in chorus and I'm, I'm in the musical and I'm playing basketball and I, I did enjoy all that stuff. But in the back of my mind, I always thought someday I'm going to be a pro ball player. And, and every day was just kind of lived toward doing that. Well, there was an American Idol back then, there, so you yeah, couldn't, yeah, yeah. you know. You're right. I wasn't going to go anywhere else. It was else. one or the other. And, yeah. and, you know, and I was a decent basketball player, but, you know, I mean, I was a 6'2 center in Baumeier, and so I kind of knew the NBA wasn't uh, probably where I was going to end up compared to – at least my chances weren't good compared to baseball, you know. But there, there were, you know, there were probably little – just little moments along the way when I was – maybe when I was playing against older guys and, and – still doing well, or like John said, you know, I was a freshman and I started on the baseball and basketball team and it was, you know, Valmeyer was a small school, so it wasn't a big surprise to play as a freshman because it was such a small school. But when you go to play against Columbia or Waterloo and you're a freshman and, and you're just as good as some of the players that are juniors and seniors, you start feeling like I, you know, I'm pretty good at this. And if I just keep working hard, you know, I'll, I'll be all right. I, there was one time, and, uh, you know, Dad, um, it was kind of funny. Dad and I had a, uh, a funny relationship because he was really hard on me when I was younger. And then there was, a, there was a period of time where all of a sudden I became really hard on myself, and he became kind of my biggest fan. We almost kind of reversed roles. And I, I don't know if he consciously did that, but when I was young, he, he 
was not big on complimenting me as a fifth grader, no matter what I did. He was the kind of guy that if I went three for four, then he would talk about the one time I made out. You know, you pulled off and you 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 didn't stay back on you know that outside pitch, that kind of thing. We just had that kind of relationship where he was on me all the time. But then all of a sudden it changed, and I was really hard on myself, and he was the one usually trying to pick me up. But um, I started playing for the Valmeyer Lakers the summer after my eighth grade year, and and I that year I know you you've got this shocked look on your face, but that year I I didn't play much. I was mostly carrying the equipment and keeping the score and just kind of being around the team, and I I was still playing with like eighth grade Corey League at the same time. But on Saturdays and Sundays, I would go to the Laker game, suit up, and I would be around them. So I do that for one year. Summer after my freshman year, I get to play a little bit. Summer after my sophomore year, I'm playing quite a bit. And again, I'm playing against a lot of college guys or some guys that had come back from pro baseball. And and I'm, again, there were ups and downs, but there's days I'm doing pretty well and I'm starting to realize you know I'm playing against these grown men and I'm I'm hanging in there so maybe there I can do this so one day um we're playing up in Edwardsville and I dad took me because I didn't I don't think I had my license yet and dad drives me up there and we get there and the coach Denny Peeper says hey Rip do you think you can catch today and I've never caught in my life and um he goes yeah you know our two catchers were probably like Wayne Rolfing and Tim Degner. I, I can't remember. He goes, you know, so-and-so is sick and the other one has to work. I don't know what the deal was, but we weren't going to have a catcher. And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll catch. So I catch a doubleheader. And the first guy that threw was a Columbia guy named Scott Schaffer. Um, and at that time, he would have probably been like 28 years old, 30 years old, you know, oh pitching, pitching college and, and now was playing in – summer league just back then a lot of the older guys just kept playing you know and so I catch him in the first game and I really can't remember if I caught Chuck Flurkey or somebody else in the second game but another guy similar to him played college baseball and now is a couple years out and I was I was by no means perfect um that day but but did okay so I we're getting the car and we drive home and dad says um you know and, and up until that time, I had always played shortstop, like a, like a lot of young kids do. If you're, if you're pretty good, then you play shortstop or center field. I mean, that's just kind of the way it worked. And so I was always a shortstop. And Dad said, I know you think you want to play shortstop. Uh, he goes, but I, I think if, you're, if you get the chance to play pro ball, I think it might be as a catcher. And, and again, I'm just like a 15-year-old punk kid, you know, but I'm in the front seat with Dad. And I'm like, what, Dad, what are you talking about? I want to, I want to play shortstop, you know. And he goes, I'm just telling you, after watching you catch today, um, and I said, well, why, you know, what makes you think that? He goes, well, because there's just not too many 15-year-old kids that could just yeah. jump back there and catch a 26-year-old that's been pitching in college and make it look like you knew what you were doing. And so, I, so that kind of stuck with me, and that story still sticks with me only because that was maybe a point where he, he was – admitting he thought I had a chance to play pro ball, pro ball, even though it was as a catcher. Um, but it, it stuck with me that, well, he thinks I've got a chance, albeit not as a shortstop. But, um, and so then I kept playing shortstop and third base, went to K-State, played third base. And then by the time I'm a junior, the scouts came to the coaches and said, can, is there a way we can see Rip catch a few games? Um, and for the Lakers, after that point, I did catch periodically. And so I had 
I kind of grown to like it and knew that maybe some point I'd end up back there. Then I caught a few games at K-State and then the Braves drafted me as a catcher. So, you know, and if I can interject here, so, I mean, we keep talking about Valmar is a small town. I was just going to say that. Yeah, but yeah. you've got the Rolfings and the Eskers, you know, yeah. the guys that could have, you know, Wayne Rolfing, Randy Esker, these guys were major league caliber players. So it's a hotbed of baseball. So I know it's a small town, but here you are as a 15 year old, these guys are, MLB prospects. Yeah, so you're, you're being a little too humble right you're now. You're being I very humble. That we look so shocked, yeah. but you're shocked because the look on our faces. How, how young you are being a part of this team. Yeah. And you have these, like he's saying, these major league caliber guys playing across this, and like that, they're Valmire Lakers are still a high caliber team. Yeah. yeah. You know, I know a couple of guys that are playing for them now, and it's the fact that you were so young being a part of that team. I and mean, I don't care what you were doing. Well, grabbing I'm, ball bags or whatever, I mean, that, just to be a part of it. I mean, that's, I mean, that's insane. My son's a 15-year-old catcher, and he's been catching for seven years, and I can't imagine him catching a 28-year-old. Yeah, you know, I yeah. mean, he's good, but, I mean, I can't imagine that. That's, yeah, yeah. How was, did you – did you block anything, or did you just catch strikes? Uh, I, mean, I, I mean, I can't imagine knowing how to do any of that. You know, um, I, had a, I had a knack for um, watching um, – watching people do things and being able to do it and, and not necessarily do it as well as them. But, um, and my dad always said that, you know, whether it was watching somebody hit or watching somebody swing a golf club or playing basketball, I just had a knack for watching, Oh, this is how you do that. Okay. And so I had watched enough baseball that this is what catchers do so I can go back there and do it. And again, I wasn't perfect. I probably had a couple pass balls. There was probably a couple balls I didn't block, but I think for the most part, I did pretty good. We won a doubleheader at Edwardsville with me behind the plate, you know? Wow. So it was, it was just one of those things that came fairly, fairly easy to me. And the call in the game part, that, that was my favorite part. And that was a no brainer i mean i had grown up with a pitching coach sure. in the house so yeah. so i understood this is what we're trying to do to hitters and this is what and i had played shortstop or third base behind scott Schaffer, so i i knew what kind of he needed to do to get guys out not that he never shook me off or we were always in tune but i had a pretty good idea this is what you're supposed to do back there i didn't know all the finer points and i didn't have the technique perfect because i'd never practiced it as far as like blocking or throwing but i mean even to catch a curveball I mean, your first yeah. time out. I mean, that's unbelievable. Well, yeah. you know, um, so then, I, so then I started catching a little more because the Lakers would play on Saturdays and Sundays back then, and so Denny started having me catch on Saturdays so the other guys could rest and be ready for Sunday league games. So I would catch the non-league games, and um, the hardest thing for me, and I, I had a really good arm um, from a, from a baseball standpoint, and. Um, man, I had trouble throwing to second base because of the timing and the footwork and everything. Mm -hmm. And so after about a week, I quit standing up and I just threw from my knees because I looked like a monkey screwing a football. When I tried to stand up and throw to second, I was throwing in the center field, I was throwing off the mound. But if I just caught and dropped to my knees, strike. And, and really? so then we're playing, um, God, we're playing a team from St. Louis and and I threw like two or three guys out from my knees and they're popping off in the dugout, like calling me a hot dog and everything. And I, and I'm like, no guys, really, I can't throw any other way. <laughs> like, I'm 
I'm not, I'm not showing off. This is the only way I can throw a strike to second base. So I, and I'm sorry that I keep throwing your guys out, but this is, this is just the way it is. But it was, yeah, it was, and again, that was just cause I didn't, I didn't know the finer points and have the technique. So I had to work on some of that. But so one thing you don't know about his dad, which I got to interject here, which is so cool. So your dad also refereed big was it Missouri Valley basketball Missouri Valley and Big Ten and Big Ten basketball yes so you know Ray was one of these guys and so a couple times he came into our basketball practice and um, I will never forget I mean I've been pretty fortunate won some championships and we got the end of one practice he came over and shook me and he goes that was an excellent practice and to this day that that stood as one of my greatest memories I'm thinking <laughs> I was like this guy officiated like Larry Bird Magic Johnson he was a, you know, and, a, and he just loved hanging around. And he, like you said, he goes, he knows excellence, and he would demand excellence. Yeah. And uh, just an all-around guy, which just not many people know. They always talk about your dad as that. When you told me that, I was floored. Yeah. And then I, I started questioning him, and like, you know, so you you got the referee like Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. <laughs> goes, oh yeah, I was there. And I'm like, oh my gosh. But he'll never tell you that. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's kind of that's yeah, the way he, he was, was. He was pretty humble about that stuff, but uh, he did and saw saw a lot. Yeah, he saw a lot. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, I think that also plays a big part of, like you said, that you kind of like watch things and then you pick it up as it. I think that's a big thing about being a coach's son. I mean, obviously, I've been a coach's son my whole entire life. I mean, thirty odd years that you were coaching. Yeah, thirty odd years. Um, it's kind of the same thing, you know, and I think that's a big testament to your dad on how he raised you and raised you in the sports. I mean, like you said, it was more of the, hey, I'm going to show you the negatives. You could do 10 things right, but I'm going to show you the one thing that you did wrong. And that was a big thing. And me, me and my sister, we joke about, we call it the two-thirds rule, where we have the good, the bad, the and the ugly. <laughs> so you have you have the one good thing, and then you have the, the, the bad and the ugly. And we still, I mean, me and my sister are both coached, and we use that still today. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I can attest to that same thing. Whereas, you know, I can remember times in my life where I wasn't a big sport. I, I love sports. Don't get me wrong. I don't have an athletic bone in my body. I just can't do it for whatever reason, but same thing. I mean, he has pushed me to, it was very critical in the beginning of a lot of things. Anytime I start something, it's very critical. But once you start becoming critical yourself, then it's like, all right, now I'm going to back you up. How can I support you? And I think that's a big testament on you and how you're so successful is because of your dad and his coaching career. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Whether, whether it was, um, whether he was being direct and verbal with me, or if it was just me picking up on signs from him on, this is how you're supposed to do things. But yeah, I obviously learned a lot from him. So now why didn't you pitch? Um, I did, I did pitch in high school again, Kind kind of like Necessity. Lot, any small town, you're one of the better players. Well, then you're going to pitch one day and play shortstop the next, then center field to the next, you know, and that's just kind of how we did things at Valmeyer. So I did. Um, uh, my dad and I talked about it later on that it, it, maybe I could have been successful because my arm was probably my best attribute. If you look at all the, um, y- you know, the things in baseball that you're graded on um, as far as baseball skills. But I just had in my head, man, I just wanted to be a big league shortstop, you know. And then, of course, that changed to I want to be a big league catcher. But 
pitching just didn't really enter my mind until I was out of baseball and looking back and thinking, you know, maybe I should have tried. Pitching. Really? My, my arm was pretty good, but, um, you know, just, yeah, I don't know. It was just one of those things. And, and to, to dad's credit or, or may, maybe not, he, he never forced me, you know, right. like he, he didn't say, Hey, we're going to go, you're going to become a pitcher and we're going to go out and work on this every day because that's the only way you're going to get to the big leagues. He just looked at me like, all right, if you want to, hit and you want to play shortstop then we'll we'll work at it and and I again I did work at pitching a little bit just just to be just to help the high school team and kind of out of necessity but um yeah I I mean as I think when I was a senior I was actually um all area pitcher not all area shortstop so <laughs> so I did I did good enough to at that level but I just didn't pursue it any further than that but I do remember my college coach so I went to a tryout camp um, for the Braves actually um, right after my junior year and uh, they had us throw they had us do several things but the catchers threw from behind home plate and they clocked us from behind home plate and so I threw 86 down to second and at, and at that time big league pitchers were only throwing 90 or 92 and so I threw 86 just throwing down to second and so my coach had called me after the tryout camp. I said, yeah, everything went good. You know, I ran average, which is run, me running average meant really good for me. Um, man, I hit good and everything. And yeah, behind the play, I threw great. I, I hit 86, you know, throwing down to second. And he's like, yeah, we should have had your ass on the mound. And I, <laughs> I, I think at Kansas State when I was a junior, our team ERA was like five, you know. And, and so I think he was thinking, yeah, we, we probably should have mixed you in on the mound every once in a while if you had that good of an arm. But it is what it is. So, so speaking of K-State, obviously your dad was in the system, but you're still from a very small town. How did you get recruited to go there? Uh, yeah, so um, my the first place that recruited me was Arkansas. And that was because Denny Peeper had a relationship with one of the coaches at Arkansas. I don't know if it was the head coach or an assistant coach, but when I was in that summer when I was uh, after I was in eighth grade, the first year I played, we had two guys from the University of Arkansas that played for the Lakers and they they came up and they they lived out in um Denny Denny's parents had a, a little house <laughs> they lived out there and then they worked at he got him a job in St. Louis during the day and then they played for the Lakers on the weekend or you know whenever we had games and so they had some he had some relationship with the University of Arkansas so sh shortly after that I might have been a freshman or a sophomore I start getting letters from the University of Arkansas baseball team once a month, they're sending me their stats or they're sending me some little thing, you know. And so I'm, so I'm of course, flattered and on cloud nine. And I'm thinking, I'm going to the University of Arkansas. I met these two players that I liked. They were cool dudes. And, of course, they're older than me. I looked up to them, you know. And I knew Arkansas was a good school, a good program. At that time, it was in the Southwest Conference, the old Southwest. So teams like Texas, Texas uh, yeah, yep, they, yep. they were all in the Southwest Athletic Conference or Southwest Conference. And so I'm thinking, I'm I'm going to go to University of Arkansas. So summer after my junior year, I'm playing for the Legion team. And um, it's, it's toward the end of the summer, one of our later games, and I have a, a crappy game. And evidently, the college coach from Arkansas was there, the, one of the assistants, and I didn't know it. 
And, and not to make excuses, but um, I grew up on a farm and um, I would, my job every day, I showed up at 7.30 and I would work until 3.30, come home, shower, sometimes take like a 20 minute nap, then jump in the car and head to Waterloo and then play a Legion game that night. And then on the weekends, play doubleheader Saturday, doubleheader Sunday. And that was, I mean, that was my routine all summer. And so toward the end of July, um, toward our last Legion games, I would be dragging ass. And that's, that. I mean, I, that probably sounds like an excuse, but I would just be exhausted. I was done with baseball. I was done with farm work. legit, I think. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I was Anybody like, that's just, worked on a farm knows exactly what you're I, talking like about. I'm, yeah, you know, so. like I'm just, you know, I'm done. I'm actually looking forward to going back to school. I mean, that was kind of my attitude by like August 1st, you know. And so I, I'm sure I had a crappy game. I'm sure I didn't run well and, you know, whatever. Well, so that coach is there and I don't know it. So the letters, so now I'm going into my senior year when I'm going to start making, wanting to go on recruiting trips and making a decision and the letters from Arkansas stop coming. <laughs> and so my dad calls the coach, or calls the athletic department, gets the baseball coach and says, hey, uh, my son is really interested in coming to school there and playing baseball. You guys were in constant touch with him for a couple of years, but now we haven't heard from you. And he, he wants to start thinking about where he's going, scheduling visits. And they said, well, we had somebody there to see him last year, and we don't think he's good enough to play at Arkansas. And, um, and I, I couldn't hear that coach's half of the conversation, but I was sitting next to dad. He was at his desk, and I'm sitting there. And dad says, well, can you, can you tell me – I think dad started by saying, you know, I've been around baseball a long time and I, I think he can play college baseball, but can you tell me, you know, why you don't think he's good enough or what he needs to work on something to that effect. And, you know, he said, well, when we were there, he struck out a couple of times and he didn't run real well. And we don't think his arms um, good enough to play at the division one level. And I remember my dad saying, Hey, look, I know he doesn't run that great and you might've seen him on a bad day, you know, he goes, but if you're telling me he doesn't have a good enough arm to play division one baseball, then I think you're crazy. And so they, they went back and forth a little bit, but dad was like, okay, you know, so Arkansas is off the list. Well, then I started getting letters from other schools, you know, Edwardsville, Illinois state, Southern Illinois, Carbondale. That's where dad went for a couple of years before he transferred to SEMO. I started getting letters and contact from a lot of, um, smaller local schools, and then a few Division I schools um, like Illinois State and Bradley and Carbondale and so forth. And so I'm starting to think about, you know, all right, we're going to make some visits and where do I want to go? And um, so then K-State reaches out. And um, they say this is only a couple weeks before um, our first game, which is against Waterloo uh, my senior year. So it would have been uh, probably around this time, they reached out, and then our first game is maybe like March 15th or something. And um, so I'm, I'm excited because they're in the Big 8. It's a, a bigger school, and, and it, it was intriguing because it was a little further away than just going to Carbondale or somewhere around here like all my friends were going, you know. And I, I thought, well, that's interesting. So they come. Um, Coach Clark comes to see me play, and I go three for four against Waterloo with two home runs, and I pitched five innings and I I'm thinking oh, I can't do any more to impress him, right? <laughs> yeah. so then he and he says I'm going to see another infielder tomorrow um and his name um if you remember at that time there was a guy with the Royals named Kevin Seitzer was was a uh, school from it Eastern Illinois okay so yes, I did so he, he had a brother named Brad Seitzer okay 
from up in Lincoln, Illinois, um, up near Springfield. And so he's going up there to see him. So sees him. And then like three days later calls me and says that they liked Brad Seitzer better than me. And I remember I was so deflated because I thought first the university of Arkansas doesn't want me. And then K-State doesn't think I'm good enough after hitting two home runs against our, <laughs> our rivals. You know, I'm like, frick man, you know, like, and so I'm thinking, I'm just going to go where everybody else goes. You know, I'm going somewhere around here and, you know, whatever. Um, well, then Brad Seitzer decides to go to Memphis. Um, like, but not until, like, this is like in May. He decides he's going to Memphis. So K-State calls me back and says, now they want me. <laughs> and I tell my dad, no chance. I said, I'm not freaking going. I, I wasn't good enough when I hit two home runs when they came to see me. I'm not going. And, and, I, and by that time, I had visited Mizzou, Illinois State, Carbondale, and maybe somewhere else. I still had one visit left. And he said, look, they're willing to fly you out there. Why don't you just go see what it's like? And he said, I'll, I'll even go with you. And so we flew out there. And um, it is the most beautiful spring day in Kansas that I've ever seen. <laughs> because after I went there, there were some shitty spring days. But this day, it's like 78 degrees, not a cloud in the sky. The grass is as green as can be. Everything's purple. Which made me feel at home because I'm from Valmire, where our whole school is oh, yeah. purple. Oh, yellow, yeah. They they had two guys, uh, Mike Rosenboom and Dan Scala, um, and Dan uh, Dan Scala's girlfriend, who was a cheerleader. Her name was Tish. Those three took my dad and I around campus, and then we went back to their apartment. And I don't know. And Sandra would laugh if she heard this because she knows what Tish looks like. But I don't know if I heard Mike Rosenboom or Dan Scala talk anything about baseball. Because <laughs> I was looking at Tish the whole time. And I, and I just thought, the weather's great. It's all purple. And Tish there's, is here. there's gals. Tish is here. Guess what? Like this, you know, where do I sign? And I remember flying home and thinking, I'm going to go to Kansas, Kansas State, you know. And so um, that's where I went. And uh, – had a great career there. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I had a great career. I met great friends. I met my wife, you know, so I, I feel like something, something led me there. Something, for, I was fortunate that Arkansas didn't think I was good enough, you know. So then when I'm a junior, um, first series of the year, we play at Arkansas. And, um, oh boy. And uh, so I'm, I'm hitting, um, let me think of it. I'm hitting fifth, and first two guys make out, and then our third and fourth place hitters get singles. And um, I hit the first pitch I see that year for a three-run home run against Arkansas. And then I got hits in four straight at-bats um, against, against Arkansas. Wow. And, and so then the next day, so we were playing a doubleheader on a Saturday and then one game on Sunday before we were driving back to K-State. So in that – and that first that doubleheader, I went like five for seven or something with five straight hits. And so then the next day, um, we're taking infield, and I'm going to catch on that Sunday. And um, their coach comes out while we're getting ready to take infield, and he apologizes to me. Really? He said, his name's Norm DeBryan, and he goes, uh, Rip, I, I just want to tell you, I know we recruited you. And he goes, I've watched you. And we, oh we had played him when I was a freshman, but I actually didn't get to play. And, and then I can't I, – we maybe played him as a sophomore too. And actually, I think I had a good series as a sophomore. 
So then he says, I've watched you the last couple of years. You've, you know, you've turned into a hell of a ball player. And obviously we made a mistake. And I was like, Hey coach, no hard feelings, man. I said, it's all, it's all worked out great. And so, but you felt good about it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I felt oh, yeah. really yeah. good. It all and, worked out great. Have you seen a, Tish? And another, yeah. <laughs> and, and another little side note. So there was a Brave Scout at that game at Arkansas. And so he came up to me after the game, after the doubleheader the first day, after I was five for seven or whatever. And he said, um, well, uh, he goes, you, you've just uh, made it so that I have to now come see K-State play four or five more times this spring and, and keep track of you a little bit. And I, That's awesome. That's so, um, yeah, so it all, it all worked out. <laughs> so, obviously, you had a really good career, a really good time altogether at K-State. When did the kind of, like, talk about being drafted start? Um. Well, like I said before, baseball is pretty humbling. And so I went through some ups and downs at K-State where I, I, you know, if you would ask me, I would say, man, I suck and there's no chance I'm going to play pro ball. And then there were other times where I, I thought I had a chance. Um, that the, the summer after my sophomore year in college, um, dad was the pitching coach for the Nashville Sounds. That was the AAA team for the Reds. And so whenever the Sounds were at home, I would drive down and spend the homestand with my dad and w- wake up, shoot the ball in the morning, do whatever, go to the ballpark with him. I would take batting practice and infield with the AAA guys, then watch the game from the stands, go in the clubhouse after, go home with dad. We would talk about the game, talk about everything. And being around those guys at that time um, and taking batting practice with them, um, I started feeling like I I can do this. I not saying I'm going to get to the big leagues, not saying I'm going to be a stud, but I, I can do this, you, you know. And so I went back to school that fall um, thinking, um, you know, I'm going to be a junior, and that's when the first time you're eligible to be drafted. I, I said, I, I've got a good chance to get drafted if I just work my ass off. So that, that fall I partnered with my, um, my college roommate was a really big weightlifter. Um, j- j- kind of we were talking about that country strong type thing. Right. He did not look it, but he was a monster in the weight room. And so I partnered with him um, in weights. And I just said, I'm, I'm, it's just going to be me and him. And obviously he was stronger than me, but I'm going to make him push me. And so everything I did that fall was just turned up a notch because I thought this is the year I could do something. And then in the spring, I got off to a great start. I actually tailed off at the end and battled some injuries. But um, throughout that spring, you know, I had some good games and would have scouts come talk to me and scouts give me questionnaires. And I started getting the feeling like I'm, I'm going to get drafted. Now it's just a matter of how high and is it going to be high enough for me to want to leave school or do I want to come back another year and so forth. Um, I even, Sandra will tell you, on our first date, um, which was that spring, um, when I was telling her good night or at some point I said, you know, um, I'm going to pursue pro baseball, and um, if we're ever going to – if this is ever going to turn into anything, then you've, you've got to be willing to put up with – Sacrifice. With that, you know, I said – Which it is. And if, and if you can't deal with that, then we probably shouldn't even go out on a second date, yeah. you know, and um, so here we are. She hung in there. 30-plus yeah. years later. So, uh, yeah, so it was that – it was probably that summer before I was a junior in college – 
I had definitely gone through some ups and downs at K-State, but I finally got to where I think I, I'm like, yeah, I think I can, I think I can hang with these guys. And so um, then that year I got, got drafted. And there were some teams that still want to draft me as a third baseman um, because that is primarily what I played at K-State other than just a few, few games where they kind of let me catch just to really show people that I could do it. Um, but you had some awards like top defensive third baseman or that year when I was a junior I got voted the best defensive third baseman in the Correct. in the conference yes. and I was second team all big eight as a as a third baseman um so I, yeah I, it was in a good conference yeah a good baseball conference yeah. I mean it was kind of like me pitching in high school like I I was I was really good I was a good third baseman but I was not you know major league teams they prioritize your tools and then they apply those to a position, right? And so, you know, if, if your best tool is, center, is speed, then automatically you get pigeonholed into center field center or field, second base sure. or shortstop or whatever, you know? And so my best attributes kind of push me to catching versus third base, um, especially since my hitting was streaky and kind of a question mark. Well, then, you know, most third basemen are not, are pretty good hitters, you, you know? Guys like Arenado um, are great hitters and great defenders, but um, so I uh, the the teams like the Reds, the Indians, there were some other teams that were involved and were going to draft me later as a third baseman, like 25th or 30th round. And the Braves, because they thought, well, if he's a catcher, then automatically he moves up to this, and they took me in the ninth round. So now, did you? At that time, did, would you have rather been catching? I mean, did you enjoy catching more, or, or were you fine with third base? I I loved playing third base at K State. Um, my best, one of my best friends was a shortstop. We we both came in as freshmen together. We both started on the left side of the infield. Um, ironically, he, I mean, he's still a great friend, and he went on to play in the big leagues. Um, he he got drafted the year after I did was an all American at K state after I left and then got drafted and made it to the big leagues. But I loved playing third base with him. I, my, the roommate that I talked about earlier, that was the big strong guy. He was our catcher and he was a great college catcher. Didn't, didn't have some of the top end skills to be a pro catcher, but college was fantastic. So our team was better with me at third base and him at catching and that, and that I was completely fine with that. But once the Braves said, we're going to draft you as a catcher, then I was all in, obviously, because I was like, hey, I just want to play pro ball. And if, you, if you're if you drafting me as a catcher, then I'm a catcher. You know, sign sign me up, and I'll I'll work at it and do the best I can. Yeah. So, so Colin, I got to interject here. So yeah, you, you have to ask him a couple great stories here. One is the Chipper Jones story, which is my all-time favorite rip story. And then was it Nickel Beer Night? The two my two favorite rip stories while with the Durham Bulls are the was it nickel beer? Well, they they used to have either nickel or ten ten cent beer. beers, and uh, then the thir yeah, thirsty Thursdays, thirsty Thursdays, and then the Chipper Jones story, which you know what Hall of Famer, yeah, All Star. So yeah, let's go with that. Um, so I'll I'll just to keep things kind of on a timeline. After I got drafted, I got sent to Idaho Falls, and this is this is one of my one of my all-time favorite baseball stories about my dad and I, and I'll um, try and get through it without getting choked up. But um, so I, I got drafted and got sent to Idaho Falls. So I mentioned the year prior, he was the AAA pitching coach for the Reds. Now he was their roving minor league pitching coach, which meant 
he basically went from team minor league team to minor league team for the Reds, spent four or five days with the pitchers and the pitching coach, kind of analyzed what they were doing, gave his input, sent back to the organization, this is what this is how these guys are doing and so forth, and then he went on to the next team. So once I got drafted and he knew I was going to be in Idaho Falls, the Reds had a team in Billings, Montana, in the same league. So he knew we would be playing the Reds team. He arranged his schedule so he would be there when we were playing. Um, so he gets to town, gets to Idaho Falls, and he and my mom both came. And um, the, the first night, there's actually a picture of us over there from that first day where he's in his Reds uniform and I'm in my Braves uniform. And it was, um, it was surreal. It, it was definitely a moment where I felt like, man, I've, I've made it. You know, I'm, yeah, I'm in a pro sure. baseball uniform next to my dad who's in a pro baseball uniform. And, um, and so we got that picture taken. We did, um, did a little interview for the paper or something like that, you know. And, and so then we went to our separate clubhouse. And, and a couple hours later, um, I hit a home run off of – one of dad's pitchers, you know, and came across home plate. And I remember thinking, man, dad's in the dugout. My mom is in the stands. Like, this <laughs> is freaking awesome. awesome. You know, it was, yeah. it was one of my, it, it was just, um, that, that memory was so great. Well, so then dad left Idaho falls, drove to Billings with the team and we went somewhere else to play for a few days. And then we were going to Billings to play them again. So he had arranged his schedule where he was going to be with the Billings team, like 10 days, three or four days when they played us, three or four days they're playing somebody else, and then another three or four days against us. So we're in Billings, and um, we're, um, we're, we're playing, and I hit another home run off of one of Dad's pitchers. And <laughs> later in the game, later in the game, I'm catching, and we bring our closer in. It's the bottom of the eighth inning, two outs, and a guy on second, and we bring our closer in. And... Um, I was still learning one of the finer points of catching is learning to pitch around guys and know, Hey, you've got a base open. So I want to call this pitch in this situation, yeah. you know? And like I said, when I was younger, I, it, it was pretty easy for me, the, the basic stuff of, Hey, we're going to get ahead with a fastball and then we're going to go to the breaking balls or this guy can't hit this. Like I, I was really good at that, but some of the specific game situations I was still learning. And so one of the things that I was not good at was, working around guys. Like I, I just had in my mind, we, you know, I like this him. pitcher stuff. We can get this guy out, you know? So we throw first pitch fastball to this guy and he lines a base hit to right field and the runners coming around and our right fielder comes up and throws. And it's just one of those kind of things where it's slow motion. I'm just waiting for the ball to get to me and I can feel the guy bearing down on me and I catch. And as soon as I get right here, I mean, this guy crushes me. His head hits At my At that elbow. time you can do that. Yeah. I mean, he plows into me, and I end up like 10 feet behind home plate just on my back. <laughs> I, I hold up the ball. I, I held on to the ball, and then I'm just – I just don't remember anything. I just kind of blacked out and was laying there. So um, the next thing I remember is on one side, I'm laying on my back at home plate or behind home plate. The um, trainer and our manager on one side of me in Braves stuff, of course, and dad's leaning over me in a Reds uniform. And I remember kind of opening my eyes and thinking, what in the, yuck, where am I? <laughs> and, and I was like, man, I, and so then the trainer is saying, Brad, Brad, are you okay? Are you okay? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. And 
the first thing I said, our manager was Steve. I go, Steve, I'm sorry. We shouldn't have thrown that guy a fastball. I know there's a base <laughs> open. And he's like, Brad, it's okay. It's okay. Don't worry about that. Just, are you going to be all right? And I was like, I think, I think I'm fine. I think I'm, I think I'm fine. And the trainer says, can you tell me where you're at? And I said, yeah, I'm in fucking Billings, Montana. And <laughs> he, he looks at my dad. He goes, Mr. Ripplemeyer, I think he's going to be okay. <laughs> Uh, so I, uh, to this day, that whole game, that whole two weeks was just, um, I'll just never forget it. You know, having sure. my mom in the stands, having dad in the other dugout, hitting a couple home runs and having it be my first experience in pro ball and then getting plowed over. Um, I, I mean, most catchers will tell you this, like you, you certainly don't like when it happens and you don't like this feeling of like, I, I would assume I had a concussion. They didn't test for concussions back then, you know, but I, I mean, I was just out of it. Um, but still, it's one of my favorite plays of any sport, any ever. any memory I've ever yes. had. Like I, I mean, like man, that's why you, man, that's why you play, you know. So, um, awesome. so yeah, it was, it was awesome. So we, we got to tell a Chipper Jones story. So we have to. Okay. So um, yeah. So um, Hall of Fame Chipper Jones. I'll, I'll tell you. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you two quick Chipper Jones story. One Chipper's not as involved in much as much, but I do like this story about us. So the next spring, I'm playing um in spring training with the durham team and and chipper and i are playing together and um we show up at port st Lucie to face the mets and um we're getting ready to play and all of a sudden i see dwight gooden warming up in the bullpen for the mets and for you young kids at that time i mean between like 85 and 82 dot gooden was about as good as it gets you know i mean this was kind of at the end and he he had maybe battled some addiction issues by then, but in my mind, he is still freaking awesome. And who I, you know, when I was in high school and watching this week in baseball and stuff like, man, he was a stud, you know, so he's down there warming up. Well, what a lot of big league teams will do is um, they want to keep their starters on the same schedule. So if the big league team has a long road trip in spring training and they don't want to send a guy like Dot Gooden on a bus for three hours, they'll have him throw in a minor league game. Or if the big league team happens to be off, then they'll have a guy like Dot Gooden throw in a minor league game just to keep him on his, you're going to throw every five days kind of thing. So it was his day to throw. The big league team was gone or whatever. So he was going to throw against us. And so... And, and again, this is my first spring training. I had played in Idaho Falls for those two months. Now I'm in spring training, and we're just starting to play games, you know, like halfway through spring training, and I'm freaking facing Doc Good. And, and um, you know, but then I started getting kind of excited, like, shit, yeah, man, I'm, I'm going to face Doc Good. And, you know, let's, let's, let's see what, we'll see what he's got, sure, you yeah. know. <laughs> so um, the first, so Chipper was hitting third, and I was hitting sixth. So, um, first two guys make outs, and then Chipper hits a line drive up the middle, base hit. And so then I, number four hitter makes an out. Um, and so then we get to the next inning, and it comes comes up to me. And I, I get in there, and, and I do remember standing outside the box and kind of looking out there and thinking, man, this is weird because I remember as a kid seeing this guy on TV, you know, and now I'm stepping in. But but I also remember kind of clearing my head and thinking, okay, you just you just got to – get after it, you know, and first pitch fastball, he throws right down the middle and I hit a line drive right past him up through the middle, you know? So we, we go around the order and he's still in when I come up, he only gave up two hits, one to chipper and one to me. And he pitched like six innings. So I come around the next time up in the third or fourth inning, whenever it was, 
um, or maybe the fifth, fourth or fifth inning, and I'm feeling a little cocky, and I, I'm thinking, I'm going to freaking take Dwight Gooden deep right here. Oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm in the on-deck circle, and I'm thinking, I'm taking him deep right you know, right now. And so I walk up there. I said, if he throws me first pitch fastball on the inner half, I am taking him out of here. And so – I'm so amped up that he throws fastball in her half and I'm out in front and I hit it over these batting cages, you know, like a mile, a mile <laughs> foul. So then I step out and I'm thinking, okay, I've seen him throw that curveball, you know, over and over, over again on Saturday game of the week. I was like, I just yanked his fastball. He's going to throw me that hook and I'm going to freaking lace it. So I, I dig back in. He throws fastball on the inside corner. Just, like <laughs> strike two. <laughs> and so I step out. I'm like, well, now I know he's throwing that curveball. I step back in fastball inside corner. <laughs> you're out. So my cockiness lasted about 10 seconds with Doc Gooden. And I was going back to the dugout, but then I sat down next to Chipper and he goes, um, Hey man, you got, got a hit off a Cy Young award winner. They can't take that away from us. You know? And I was like, yeah. And it was funny because Chipper was acting like it was a big deal to him too. You know, well, I ended up going nowhere, and Chipper was in the Hall of Fame, so it was not—it was not a big deal that Chipper got a hit off of him, obviously, but um, still was for me. Um, so we break. So that's that's spring training. So then we break with the Durham team, and we're in Durham, and um, I get off to a to a decent start um, in April, and then uh, we um, are facing the Orioles at home. Um, their their team was based out of Frederick. And um, two nights in a row, and now I'm, I, we've been at home for a homestand, and I'm struggling a little bit, and then the Orioles come to town, and, and they've got this big left-handed pitcher, and Jesus, I, I should know his name because he pitched in the big leagues. Um, son of a gun. Anyway, he's their closer. And two nights in a row, um, he strikes me out for the final out, um, like a Friday night and a Saturday night. So on Sunday, I'm not in the lineup, and we have this terrible storm rolls in, and we have all these rain delays, and they, throughout the course of the delays and everything, they're beating us like 10 to 2. And I'm down in the bullpen, not playing, just warming up some guys, and I'm, especially once it got to 10 to 2, I'm like, I'm done, you, you know, let's just get this game over with, get out of this nasty weather, go home, and we'll try again tomorrow. And all of a sudden, bottom of the ninth inning, we get two guys on, three-run homer. Get a guy on, double. Get a, another double. And all of a sudden, it's like 10 to 7. And I've already – I mean, I hate to admit it, but I've already checked, checked out. checked out. <laughs> yeah. I've already checked out. I mean, I've got my bag packed down there, and I'm just sitting there in the bullpen like, you know, we're down 10 to 2, and now all of a sudden it's 10 to 7. And we get another guy on, and I know our catcher's left-handed – and he's like in the hole or maybe up third. And I start thinking, you know, if a couple more guys get on and they bring the left-handed closer in, I'm not so sure I'm not going to have to hit. And so shortly after I'm thinking that, the manager is like, hey, Rip, get, you know, start stretching, get ready. I'm like, fuck, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, um, to the best of my ability, try and zone back in and get ready to go. And sure enough, we get the tying runs on, and they their manager goes out, brings in their closer. He comes trotting in. Manage, our manager calls me up to pinch hit. So I go up there. I freaking strike out. 
and I'm pissed, not because I struck out because I wasn't ready. You know, I, I mean, I, I was just mad at myself and knew it was um, just not being prepared, you know, so I'm, so I go into the clubhouse and I'm throwing all, on the way into the clubhouse, I'm throwing shit, I'm hitting stuff with my bat, whatever, we go through, we get into the clubhouse, I'm still throwing stuff, I'm screaming, and I finally sit down in front of my locker, and I've just got my head on my, I mean, my hands on my head like this, you know, and Chipper walks behind me and says, um, taps me on the back, he's like, hey, Rip, we'll get them tomorrow, man. And it was just one of those times where you didn't want to hear anything from anybody, right? Like I, I just, no matter what anybody said, I was going to be upset. So it, something snapped and right behind me is where we kept these big 50 gallon garbage cans for our uniforms and so forth. And so I don't know why, but I just jumped up, grabbed one of those garbage cans and turned around and (laughs) heaved it. And didn't really pay attention. Well, Chipper had patted me on the back and then started walking in the same direction that I heaved it. And I throw, oh, it, off, shit. Uh, I throw it off Chipper's. Chipper Jones, Hall of Famer. Oh. And, and he, I mean, he, you could have heard a pin drop in the locker room. And I went from being this big, tough, mean guy that had just struck out to being like this big. <laughs> and Chipper slowly turns around. He goes, hey, watch where you're throwing the fucking trash cans in. <laughs> I was like, okay, Chipper, okay, okay, okay. And so um, the next day I had to apologize to him, of course, and we we still remained really good friends. He acted after that one day, he acted like it never happened. Um, he still, I, I've seen him since then quite a few times, and almost every time he sees me, he brings it up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm glad he can still joke about it and doesn't hold it against me. But, um, yeah, it wasn't one of my better moments. But <laughs> One of my favorite Chipper Jones stories is uh, he's a first baseman for the Dodgers now. Sean, he played for the Braves forever. Oh, uh, Freeman. Fre- yes, yes. Yeah, Freddie Freeman. Freddie Freeman. When yep. he was caught in that snowstorm and he tweeted out that he was stuck on the highway and Chipper Jones shows up in the four-wheeler and yep. picks him up from the highway. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no Freddie kidding. Freeman was stuck in a huge oh snowstorm, and he just tweeted, hey, I'm stuck here on 95 or whatever, and here comes Chipper in a, in a four-wheeler and comes and picks him up and takes him home. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's funny. You know, he um, – I always got along great with Chipper. Um, he was always really good to me. He was always really good to Sandra. Um I, I know he made mis- some mistakes, and there are certain people he rubbed the wrong way, or maybe you know wasn't as good to. But um, he was he was always good to me, and man, was he a good freaking player! God darn. TJ, oh, yeah. I'm putting you on the spot. Are you ready? Yeah. Chipper's real name, Larry. Very good. Larry. Very good, Larry. Larry Wayne. Larry. Yes. Yeah. Um, he was. You know, when I played with him in Durham, he was. Um, maybe the fastest guy on our team. I mean, he was fast, fast. Like, like you talk, Jones. you talk about wow. five tool guys. I mean, he, he could, he was a switch hitter hit for average, great swing, great plate discipline, could hit for power, could run wow. great arm, just could do absolutely everything. Then the next year or a couple years later, when I was in major league spring training with him, um, that's when he blew out his knee. And, and then he, so he blew out his knee, which I think slowed him down a little bit. And then I gave him trouble a a few years later. Um, I had him in fantasy league, 
Um, going all the way back then, I'm with my. I, I'm. I think I'm just out of baseball now, and I'm in a fantasy league with my buddies. And of course, I draft Chipper. Like I don't. I don't. I probably drafted him number one, no matter where he was ranked. And so then I go over to see him at uh, at Bush Stadium. And I'm like, dude, you're killing me in fantasy. You never steal any bases. Like I know you can steal bases. He's like, every time I try and steal base, I get the stink eye from Fred McGriff because Fred McGriff would hit after him, you know? And, and he goes, yeah, and he goes, Fred McGriff gets all over my ass if I try and steal bases. He goes, I'm shut down. And I was like, well, that sucks for my fantasy team because I need you <laughs> to steal a few bags. But <laughs> Now, when he was in, at, in Durham, I mean, was he a golden child? I mean, did they know he was a sure thing or not so much? He, he was um, – kind of just transitioning because the year before he was in Macon, which was our low A. So when I was in Idaho Falls, he was in Macon and he made 50 airs in Macon. 50 airs. 50. Made 50. And so they there, so there was this doubt. Can and now granted he was only 19, I think, you, you know, but but they're like, can he play shortstop? Is is he actually an infielder, you know? Well, then he comes to Durham and he spends half the year with us. And he only, I say only, only hit 290 or something. Like it wasn't like, it wasn't like every day you looked at him and said, wow, his numbers say he's off charts. But when you were around him, when you, when you watched him take batting practice and just watched the way he walked and everything, you're like, that guy is a little bit above the rest of us. You know, I mean, he was, he, he was, he just had it. You know, well, then halfway through the year at Durham, he gets sent to double A and he hit like 360 in double A after hitting like 290 the first half of the year in A ball. And so there was this transition going on that he was figuring it out. And then he and then the next year he was in the big leagues. um, And and that's when he well, the next year, I guess he spent the full year in triple A. Then the next year he was in the big leagues and um, tore up his knee in spring training. And, you know, then the Braves had Jeff Blauser. So he kind of he was going to play left field for a while because they had Jeff Lauser and Terry Pendleton, and there was there was not really a spot for him. And then by the time he settled in, third base was where he needed to needed to be. But. So once again, I I got to interject here. So Schnedeker, Brian, you, Brian Snicker, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean he's amazing, right? Yeah, yeah. And I mean this guy is an amazing story. Yeah. Late in his life, all the success, but you saw it coming, didn't you? Yeah, you know he was. He was never my manager, but he was he was my coach in instructional league in spring training, and then one year he was our coach during the season, and he he just had a uh, he had a very calming effect when you talked to him about baseball, whether you were doing good or bad. He he was just always even keel, and hey, th- these are the things you need to work on. This this is gonna this is how it's gonna play out. You're gonna be okay, or you know just. Um, yeah, he's just a great, great dude that I don't know if I ever met anybody, that, any players that I played with. Nobody had a bad, ever had a bad word to say about him. You know, right. I've heard we, were never, we were yeah. never back at our hotel saying, ah, oh, freaking Snickers driving me crazy. Or, you know, can you believe he said that? Which there were some coaches that we thought that about. Hmm. Nobody ever said anything bad about Snicker. It was nobody ever thought he doesn't have any ulterior motives. It's He never acted like I'm trying to get to the big leagues or I'm worried about he just he was just there giving you advice and doing what he did and you know it was kind of funny he he even later was kept kind of getting overlooked overlooked and all of a sudden got the interim job yeah just for a brief period and basically a handful of players yeah. went and said 
hey, he's got to be him. the next manager or <laughs> get the World Series title. And then, awesome. yeah, and then the next, yeah, the next year he's manager of the year and they win a World Series. Yeah, he's a he's a great dude and he's still a great dude. You know, we went and saw him down on the field. I don't know if it was last summer or the year before. Sandra and I went over and, uh, you know, I I. I actually, I was truthful with him. I said, man, after all the success you've had these last few years, it is, it is great that when I text you, you still say, yeah, Rip, come on over. I'll leave you passes. You know, I'd love to see you. I said, that's awesome. And he's like, well, who the hell am I? Like, I'm just, he goes, I, I'm no different than you. I just, I just kind of lucked out and I've been able to stick it out. He goes, but man, we're all just ball players. This is, this is what we do. Why wouldn't I treat you like that? And I was like, well, not everybody no does. Sense, yeah, right? yeah. Awesome. No well, that sense. goes back to what I was saying earlier about how it's, different generation of attitudes and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but Rip, going back a little bit, back to your dorm days, because we've talked about that extensively now. couple things here. 92, you played for Durham. Yes. 88 is when the movie came out. Yeah. Did that play a factor? Because, I mean, you had a hell of a time in Durham when you were there. I mean, you had... Yeah, it was your hell, best year. I mean, yeah, yeah, a really, really good career when you were there. Yeah, it was. Um, um, it was the coolest up to up to that point, and maybe now, still looking back, one of the coolest baseball atmospheres I've ever been in. Um, it was probably hot. It was after hot. The movie it, after out. the movie came out, that everybody in that area supported the team. People came there from outside the area because they wanted to come to a game there. Um, you know, after playing in a place like Idaho Falls. And, and some of the road trips we went on in, in that league, in the Pioneer League, you know, where there'd be 300 people in the stands. Um, Durham, there were several thousand every night, and some nights eight or 10,000, depending on the promotion that was going on or whatever. Um, it, was, it was a fun time to be there. And I don't know, you know, I don't know if that played into me having a decent year that year or not. I, I had a really good year in Idaho Falls. I thought I had figured a few things out with my – with my swing, I hit 358 in Idaho Falls, um, and I thought I had figured out a few things with my swing on how I was going to be successful. And then in Durham, I I had gotten a little bigger and stronger, um, and that allowed me to hit some more home runs. My swing got a little longer, which meant I struck out more, and and so it was kind of I don't know. Um, it was just it was an interesting time for me as a, a player because I was going through some changes and I was having some success, but there's no doubt Durham was um, that that team. We had a good team. There were several big leaguers on that team, and we had um, a lot of fun in that atmosphere. That is um, <laughs> that is for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Now, one thing I have to ask you though is, here's your baseball card <laughs> from that year. Did, did they tell you to directly? Like did you. they tell you to directly look into the sunlight I, and act like you're catching a ball? Or? I really, you know, those baseball <laughs> card things. Sometimes they would tell you what to do, and sometimes they asked you what you wanted to do. And I think in this one, I think the guy, or it could have been a gal too, said, "Hey, how about if I get up on the dugout and I look down like you're catching a pop up?" And you know, and to be honest, we didn't put a lot. Depending on what day we, they were there, and if I had gone over four the night before, and I was pissed off, I kind of a lot of times I was like, just let's just kick, take this picture and get the <laughs> hell out of here, you know. And then, and then other times we were really concentrating on, hey, let's do something funny. Or one of my buddies, um, one of uh, our catcher has a baseball card, 
and he's he's kneeling like he's like he's given a sign or something. And in the background, my roommate is in the batting cage acting like he hit a home run. And so on that particular day, we were being a little more creative. But obviously, on this day, no, I was probably I mean, look at the shadow. You are looking directly into the sun. There's no way you're catching that ball. The, the, I, they were probably going for good lighting, looking right yeah. into the sun yeah. or something. I don't know, but. Yeah, those baseball cards, some of those. Uh, I would have never guessed that was you. It doesn't look like me? <laughs> Absolutely not. I mean, if your name's crossed off of that, I would have never guessed that was you. What's uh, Well, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah. let's get into the uh, not-so-fun, you know, not-so-highlights. Yeah. Um, I know we've talked about this before, but after you got hurt, you kind of struggled a little bit. Yeah. So I, so really, truth be told, I, I struggled before I got hurt. Um, the next year after Durham, so in Durham I made the all-star team. But like I, I said, I was kind of alluded to it earlier. I hit a bunch of home runs in Durham, but my swing started getting just a little longer. And not to get too technical from a baseball standpoint, but that's not a good thing. And so I made the transition from single A to double A. And the one thing people say about that transition um, is that all of a sudden you're facing consistent guys that could be in the big leagues. In rookie league and single A, you're occasionally facing guys that could be in the big leagues, but they're mixed in with some guys that probably aren't going to get there. And then you get to double A, and if there's 10 pitchers on the staff, they all have the potential to be in the big leagues. They're not all going to make it, obviously. Yeah. So as a hitter, that, that means no matter who they're rolling out, they're probably pretty good. And if you've got an issue um, in your swing, a little, uh, you know, a little loop or something they can take advantage of, the guys in AA are good enough that they can take advantage of. So the next year, I hit 193 or something in AA. And it was a combination of things. My swing's a little longer. I'm, it's the first time in my life that I'm not playing every day, um, which was an adjustment. I was all, you know, you grow up in Valmeyer, you're in the lineup every day, whether you, you're over over 10 or 10 for your last 10, right? And so I never had to think about, well, am I, am I even going to get to play tomorrow? And all of a sudden that starts playing into it. And playing once every three or four days was something completely new to me. And I probably didn't adjust well to that. And so there's a bunch of things going on. And I don't, I just don't hit very well. Defensively, it was the best year I've ever had. Our manager was a great, he was a former big league catcher. His name was Bruce Kim. Um, and he taught me so much. He worked my ass off. And I became a great defensive catcher that year. I was actually voted the, uh, the best defensive catcher in the Southern League in double A. But I hit 193. <laughs> so then I go to... Um, the Arizona Fall League, which is where each major league team sends about five or six of their best prospects. And I wasn't supposed to go, but the catcher that they sent um, got hurt when he first got down there. So they called me and asked if I you know, would be willing to go. And of course, I jumped at it because it, it meant the chance to, after a crappy year, to play another month or two in Arizona and play against the best players from every other organization. And I go down there and I did really well. And then I got invited to Major League Spring Training. So I go to Major League Spring Training and do great in Major League Spring Training, come down to the minor leagues um, and do great there. And the last day of the spring, our farm director calls me in and he says, um, hey, 
if we would give a MVP award for spring training, you would win it. That's how good, that's how good you've been. Yeah. Um, he goes, and I want, and again, this is coming off after the year I was in double a, he goes, I want to send you to triple a, that's who you've been working out with. And, and that's where you deserve to go. But we already have, um, two catchers in triple a. And so you wouldn't get to play. And so it's not fair for me to send you there. And I, in my mind, as he's saying this, I'm thinking, that's fine. I'll go back to double A. I was crappy there last year, but I, I won't be this year. And he goes, and I want to send you to double A, but he said, but we have, we had a guy that was in single A the year before that was an all-star and he's coming up and he is supposed to catch every day in double A. He goes, so if he goes, I'd like to send you to double A, but you won't get as much playing time as you deserve there either. So I'm going to send you back to Durham. And I was like, I was an all-star in Durham two years ago. And you're like, what, what the hell? And you just told me I was the MVP of spring training. I'm going back to a ball. So I go back there and I had not told anybody, but I was having some back issues that spring, even though I had played great. um, I was having some back issues, but I just was like, well, I'm not going to be in the training room in big league camp. You know, I'm going to go out there and play every day if they'll let me. And, so about midway through that summer, so I get sent back to Durham. I'm just doing so, so nothing great, not, not terrible, not great, but my back's killing me um, to the point of, I mean, I'm having trouble putting socks and shoes on and then I'm going to the ballpark and trying to catch. And sure. so finally midway through the year, I went to the team doctor and said, something's got to give. And so I had back surgery. So I was, I was really struggling before that maybe I had started to figure a few things out and then the back thing flared up. I don't know. Then I came back from the back thing and physically I was a hundred percent. I never remember once thinking, Oh, I don't have the same power or I can't do what I did before. So the back thing wasn't an issue. I just, I just couldn't figure out hitting wise how to be consistent and couldn't regain some of the, some of the thoughts and some of the things I had done you know, in previous years. Yeah. So. I mean, you, you've got to be pissed though. I mean, you, you get told that you are, if there was an award, you get the MVP for spring training say, Hey, I'm, I'm going to send you up, but you know, <laughs> this or that. And then, so now you're getting demoted, you know, to the, the bottom league. I mean, it's, yeah, it's gotta be heartbreaking. It was. Like, hey, I'm, I'm getting told that I'm doing so great, but yet I'm getting sent back. Well, you know, it's it's just um, unfortunately it's part of baseball, and it's it's um, the part that a lot of people don't see. They they see all oh, these guys make millions of dollars, and they 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 don't see all those stories. It's a it's a tough and cruel business, and that is just what it was. And so, you know, Sandra, because like I said, this is the last day of spring training, so Sandra is here at home, um, packed up and ready to go, and just waiting for me to tell her where she's driving with all of our stuff and our dog. And she says, so am I going to Richmond? And I said, no. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to Greenville. And I said, no. <laughs> and, and she said, well, where then? I said, we're going back to Durham. And I think she was probably more pissed than I was, you know, yeah. <laughs> for, for me, um, it, it was, it, I mean, I was pissed. Don't get me wrong. I was pissed. And, um, but but I it, there was a reality of okay now I got to go there and I've I've got to get to work and so forth and so I I don't know I don't feel like I had much time to dwell on it at the time, um, you know when people ask me about 
like getting the breaks and, oh, you, you should have been in the big leagues. Or, and sometimes I run into some former minor leaguers that say they got the raw deal or whatever. I just don't think that happens very often. Like I, I had plenty of opportunity to prove myself. Right. And, yeah. it, and I didn't make it happen. So it, that, yes, that one instance sucked. And maybe that one instance was a little unfair. I shouldn't have gone back to Durham. But all I had to do is go back to Durham and do my thing. Right. And then after back surgery, all I had to do is do my thing. If I, if I go somewhere and I'm a good catcher and I hit 280, I'm probably going to get a chance to get to the big leagues. And so I didn't do that. So for the, I just think it's a rare occasion when somebody really got the raw deal. I deal. think most of the time they had opportunity and just out. didn't yeah. quite yeah. do yep. it. But how many guys did you see that were behind somebody that you think should have – you know, our buddy Chris Durbont, he's got a real good buddy, Hack, who was behind David Ortiz and Joe Maurer in Minnesota. You know, there was you know, he played first base and hit the hell out of the ball, and yep. and but there was two guys in front of him and never got that chance, got hurt, and now he just you know does I hitting. Think, um, I think if you go back fifty or sixty years ago, I think that maybe happened more often because they had different rules as far as being able to go to other organizations and so forth. Now they have a Rule Five draft, and and they have some different things, and then you can become a six-year free agent after six years in the minor leagues. Um, so I, so yes, you, you can get caught and, and kind of lost in the shuffle if there's a bunch of good players at your position around you. But I, I just feel like over time, if you're, if you're good enough and you're willing to stick it out and you perform, then you're going to get your opportunity somewhere along the line. I just don't think it happens too often. And, and I never thought it happened to me. I, I was always real honest with people when they would ask me, uh, I just, man, I just flat out didn't play good enough, you know? And, and I think the other misconception people have is there's, there's a difference between having the talent and actually the, the execution and the consistency it takes to be a big league ball player. I played with and against a ton of guys that could have been big leaguers and, and weren't, and I'll even put myself in that group because we just couldn't quite figure out how how can we be successful every day, not just a yeah. couple days a week or whatever. And and every day, every minute. Yeah. Yes. And and I um, my my buddy, well, you know, a couple of quick stories about people who saw me play. My buddy Dan came and saw me play in Double A, and he's like, "Rip, you look like a big leaguer." Now, on that particular night, I had a couple of hits. I threw two guys out trying to steal. Like you look like a big league catcher, you, you know. Well, I just didn't do that every night. Every you, night, you know. Yeah. And and I tell people all the time, if you that year I'm in Greenville, I'm hitting 190. If you would have called me up to the big leagues and somebody who didn't know any better just comes to a game that night, just two business guys having a beer and watching a game, I probably would have blended in just fine, and I would have looked just fine. But if I was there a week, two weeks, three weeks, I would have hit. 150. You know what I know what I mean? I, the guys, once you get to double and triple a, I mean, they, they are big league caliber ball players. They just haven't figured out to how to do it consistently. Um, it's not, they're not going to stand out like, Oh, that guy's definitely in double a it, but somewhere along the line, you got to figure out how do I get myself up there and stay. Yeah. Um, that just kind of shows you how elite of the elite that the big leaguers are. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, it, you yeah, know, really is. it's a great way of putting it. The elite. Yeah. yeah it really I think is. if you, I, I tell people, and, and I don't know the access to the minor leagues, like in spring training is not as easy as it used to be. But if you ever get the chance to go to uh, watch like the minor league workouts, like down in Jupiter and they've got the five or six backfields, 
you know, there's a couple hundred guys out there, right, between the pitchers and the position players. And and you can look out there, and there'll, there will be a handful that stick out like, hey, that dude is 6'4", 220, and built bigger than everybody else. And when he hits, you watch the way he hits. So there's a handful of guys that are like that, that you know, that guy's going to make it no matter what. And then there's probably a handful that were a really late round draft pick and they're probably not a true big league prospect, but they, they were good in college. You know, maybe they're a little undersized or whatever, and they were successful in college, but probably just not going to make the big leagues. Then the majority of the guys are in the middle and they're all really freaking good and look exactly the same. <laughs> and some of those guys are going to separate themselves. They're going to figure it out. And some of the guys are not like me, you know? And so, like I said, if, you would have come to spring training and watch me take batting practice or watch me take infield. You're like, that guy's pretty good, but I just couldn't figure it out to where yeah. I could be at that level every day. Yeah. You know? I think, I think there's a, a nice mix of skill and luck mixed with it because yes. um, my cousin, Josh Mueller, he was in single, double and triple A. I mean, he'll tell you, I mean, he had really good times and he had really bad times, but like you said, it's the consistency that goes along with it. And I think he got dealt a bad hand where there was, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Pop, but there was a couple guys that got sent down from the Rockies organization, pitcher-wise, yeah. where they're like, hey, we don't have enough room. Yeah. And where he got sent down where he's like, all right, so I have to make a decision now. Yeah. And then you have Josh Fleming, who I went to high school with, where, I mean, in high school, he was an okay ball player. Went to Webster, yeah. excelled beyond Sell belief, Webster, yeah. and then he was consistent at that excel. And then now, I mean, he played at Pittsburgh, Tampa Bay. Well, I mean, he's, he's at Pittsburgh right now. now. Yeah, I mean, one of his first games was in the World Series. Yeah, and he actually did very decent. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, you you hit on it with Josh's case, and and this uh, you know. So now I I do financial work for a lot of these ball players, and I see it happen all the time. They're they're is a bottleneck in double AA, A, triple A in the big leagues, right? Because there's nowhere else to go. And so you, you've got your major league team set and not everybody can stay on it. So guys are getting sent down in spring training, but you've got these guys that were pretty good in double A last year. They want to go up to triple A and there's nowhere for yep. everybody to go. And so the team then has to start making tough decisions, just like with me. Hey, well, you, you should maybe be in AAA, but unfortunately you're going to A-ball, you know, and, yeah. <laughs> and, and that happens all the time. And so, yes, there's a little luck with it, but I, but I still go back to, hey, if I go back to Durham and hit 20 home runs again, then I'm probably back in AA or AAA, you yeah, know? And so, exactly. so ultimately, um, ultimately I think, I think, but it, but it's hard. I'm not saying it's easy to go back and do that because it plays with your mind and, oh, yeah. and you know, it's hard. You know, but it it's a tough. But let's say you know you go to AAA, and those two catchers aren't there, and you face better pitchers and more consistently strikes. You know, I mean, who yeah, knows who what knows? can happen? Who knows? You know, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, There's just so many different things. A lot of luck. A lot. Yeah. 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 It's oh um. It is. It's it. It's a. It's a crazy, hard, humbling game, but man, it's the best thing in the world. Oh yeah, you know, like I, I, Sandra and I talk about it all the time. Those, those were hard times um, with a lot of ups and downs, but the best time of our life. We met great people, and it, and it formed everything I have now is because of my time in the minor leagues. You know, it, it, 
then turned into me coaching a little bit, then me meeting a lot of people, me getting into this business where I help ball players financially, and it all stemmed from the fact that I got to play in the Meyer Leagues a little bit. So yeah, and uh, Rip, I'm glad you brought that up because when you realize that, hey, I'm not going to make it to the majors, or I'm not, this is not going to be my career. When did you transition to the coaching aspect? So I, I really always thought I was going to coach. Um, you know, I watched my dad do it all that time, and I just had this mindset that I'm going to play as long as somebody will give me a uniform and let me play, and then I'm going to be a coach just like him. And and I had the mindset that I'll be a really good coach, not not because I – um, not because I was cocky and thought I had all these attributes to be a good coach. I just thought um, I- I'll put my mind to it and I'll be a good coach just like, you know, I'll work at it just like dad did and I'll become a good coach. Um, and so that's as soon as I got released, I started sending letters to everybody I knew in baseball, including Chuck Lamar, the f- same farm director that told me I should have been MVP, but he was sending me to um, – a ball he was now the um he was now general manager of the tampa bay rays so i sent him a letter said chuck i just got released but i want to coach and he called me and offered me a coaching job and so so i went into coaching and i went in thinking i'm going to do this forever this is going to be my career but that at the exact same time sandra had twin girls and I, so I coached for three years, but each year it got a little harder, and I started asking myself, is this really what I want to do? You know, you, um, you wake up at like 5 in the morning on a bus in West Virginia and have $100 in your checking account and twin girls at home. You start kind of saying, what the hell am I doing? You know, like, and so I, I had a lot of those moments and started thinking. I, I, and I still thought I could be a good coach. I thought I could be a good manager. Um, because of just kind of my mind and the way it worked and how long I had been around baseball and so forth. But I just had a shift in priorities. But I love the coaching aspect. One of my favorite things in life that I have gotten the chance to do is coach third base. Um, absolutely one of the most enjoyable things I've ever done on a ball field. Um, and, and so I would have loved to continue to do that. I would have loved to have been a big league third base coach. But – it just had a change in priorities and came came back here to Monroe County and here we are. So So given the opportunity, would you go back and coach? Drop of a dime. Uh I I don't I don't think so. I there's too many there's too many obstacles for me to do it now. Um now, you know, at a, a much smaller level, like we were talking before you guys got here, my daughter's going to teach at Waterloo now, and she was a decent high school basketball player. And if she started coaching at some level, I'd love to coach sixth-grade girls basketball with her. Yeah. But um, to, to go back into pro coaching or anything like that, I, you know, what, what I have on the financial side, I wouldn't want to give that up. And – I just think there's other obstacles too. And one one of them is now I've I've been out of that aspect of it so long that um I don't know, relating to the kids and doing everything that the coaches are required to do now it's it's just all a little different. Oh. What's what's being taught is different. You know, when I see some of the stuff being taught hitting wise, I'm like, oh, 
I couldn't teach that, you, you know, not, <laughs> yeah. not only do I not know how to teach it, I don't agree with it. So I couldn't teach it from a, <laughs> from a philo- philosophical standpoint. Uh, so I, I just, I don't see that ever in the cards. Why don't you help with the high school team? Well, I did, did. until um, some guy here to my right caught me at the Y <laughs> at a weak moment and talked me into coaching basketball instead of baseball. But uh, and and I'll I loved coaching high school baseball. I think I did it six years with Coach Janey, and and I loved doing it while I did it. It gave me a chance to kind of reengage with ball players and be around ball players and maybe share a little a little knowledge. Um, but I'll be honest, when you asked me to coach basketball. I was so excited because basketball was so refreshing to me because I had been around baseball so much and I had, you know, played it, then done it, then coaching the minor leagues. And now I'm coaching again at high school and basketball was something I hadn't been around since high school. And so it it was just completely, it was like, man, I have not talked basketball and been able to be around basketball in such a long time. It was just a breath of fresh air. So I'm really glad I did that too. Who was uh, harder on you? Uh, Mr. Weinberg here or Larry Rothschild? <laughs> who, who, is, who is better to coach with? Larry Rothschild, man. That is a name from the past. So that's funny because Larry Rothschild was a coach with the Reds. When I first met him was when Dad was the AAA pitching coach and Larry was the roving pitching coach. And so um, so I got to know Larry a little bit. If I'd be in Nashville with the team, Larry, it might happen that Larry was in town as the roving pitching coach. And then years later, he's with the Rays. And, um, yeah, he stayed in baseball then a long time. I mean, he was, he was with a variety of organizations and we would cross paths. I always got along really well with Larry Rothschild. He wasn't too hard on me. <laughs> Werenberg, yeah, he was tough, man. He'd get mad when the post players weren't doing what they were supposed to do. And then I was in charge of them. So <laughs> I will, I'll tell you about this, Bob Brad. One of my favorite stories <laughs> is like, I call Brad when I say, Hey, Brad. What do you think, like, they're going to think that we're going to do wrong? Like, what can we do? We got to prepare, like, what they're going to think we're going to do wrong. He goes, no, no, no. What are we going to do right? And, I mean, to that day, it stuck with me. He's like, okay, so, like, what do we do that they can't stop? You, yeah, we you, were, you were talking on about that. scouting on the other team. We were team. scouting on the other team, and he goes, like, no, 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 stop it. What can we do that we can expose them and to that day, I was like, you know what? That changed my whole philosophy in coaching. And I was like, so Brad was always that common influence. You know, Colin's too much like me. You know, I'd have, <laughs> Colin and I, we get together. We're almost like, it's like fire on fire. It and gets Brad, a little rough. Brad would be the guy like, okay, just calm down. What can <laughs> yeah. we do? You know, so, but, but you know, but I, I, I never forget that. That was an amazing thing yeah. that he said. He's like, no, no, what do we do? They have to stop, and I'll to this day. I oh yeah, with it. I think uh, oh, yeah. yeah that I remember Dad harping on that a lot when I was growing up because you know some sometimes like I said I was my own worst enemy, and so you start worrying about the opposing pitcher and what they're going to throw, or you start worrying about the opposing hitter and what they can or can't hit, and and then in basketball you you, you just worry about all these things that really aren't under your control, so you. You figure out to control what you can control, and that is all right. If you know what, let's execute the plays. Whatever plays we're running, we got to execute them. And if and if they stop us, so be it. But we've got to execute our plays, and we've got to dictate things. And and he harped on that a lot. And so I don't know. That probably stuck with me, and I guess I tried to pass it Changed, on to you a little yeah, bit. Yeah, did. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. 
Hey, Colin, did you notice, though, that when we brought Rip onto our coaching staff, the female um, attendance. attendance oh yeah, through the roof. Yeah. I'm not sure that was me or you, but yeah. we brought Rip in. Yeah. Like, all of a sudden, like, our females are streaming right. into the gym. It's like Swifties. Yeah. We had, had of, about all of a bunch, of, had a bunch yeah. of Rippies showing up we to the game. The rippies. Oh, yeah. I like that. The Rippies. We, we had about ten fans all together. We had ten fans. I brought Rip in. It was like, we had all a of a sudden, the whole gym was like packed. Yeah. Yeah. Lord, I don't even know how to. I don't even know what to say to that. I, no comment. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, we had some great. We had some great uh, victory celebrations at your bar, though. We, oh we yeah, did. we oh, did, yeah. man. We had some good times. We, I, I, I loved that age group, you know. And not that I didn't like coaching the high school kids um, in baseball, but the, the high school kids some sometimes are a little more set in their ways, and yeah. and certainly. I, I kind of understand it when you're a senior in high school and, and in some cases you're not going to play any more baseball and you get to the last five games of the year there, there was, I could just sense, all right, there's a few guys that have just kind of checked out and they've moved on. They're ready for prom graduation, you know, whatever. And eighth grade, like though, for the most part, those kids are all in, you know, you say yeah. jump, they say how high oh you say, gosh. Hey, we need to run through this brick wall. Okay. Coach Riffelmeyer, you know? And, and so I love that about it. They, they were just, they were just gung-ho all the but, time. But, you know, I mean, oh, yeah. I, I've said this to this day. I mean, I, I've been so fortunate from through Belleville and Columbia, like a lot of victories. But the night that we won the championship against Waterloo and their gym, we came back to Rip's house. Oh, my gosh. I mean, <laughs> Nothing, better. Like, nothing better. Nothing better. I mean, it, it, to this day, it's still the greatest victory ever. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, you, don't, you can't relive that stuff. I mean, it's, it's yeah. crazy. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, good, good stuff. Good stuff. Well, yeah, you know, we talked a lot of baseball tonight, um, and we, we talked a little bit about kids and how they become specialized now in certain sports. But um, man, I feel sorry for the kids that uh, some of my best memories are basketball. You know, yeah. some, some of my best memories are like that winning yeah. a big game or winning a tournament championship. Even though I went on to play pro baseball, and um, so yeah, those things. They stick with you, especially if you're passionate about it. And I feel sorry for some of the kids who miss out on that because they just want to play baseball or just want to do one thing because uh, there's just a lot of great experiences out there. Oh, yeah. One of my favorite memories from both used to was we were at the Westland Tournament. Oh, and you God. know exactly where I'm going with this. I know where I'm going with this. So we, we were playing very bad. This is basketball. We were playing very, very bad. Um, and just nobody was playing to the potential. And so we go halftime, um, and Pop is, he's laying down the law. And so he goes, he goes, anybody else got something to say? Well, I got something to say. And, you know, I, he, he lives his life and his coaching career off Bobby Knight. And so I, <laughs> I go off my, my coaching career off living off him and off Bobby Knight. So, we're playing bad cop, batter cop. And so he gets done, and then I escalate the situ- situation. And we're, we're feeding off each other. And it's not, it's not the best scenario. No. You know, um, and then we get done with everything, and the rip goes, hey, guys, like, we got to stay positive. And here we go. <laughs> <laughs> me and him, we're yelling back and forth. And every, everything's done. Like, me and him get both done. Like, it's crossfire of us yelling at the players and here comes rip like hey man we got to try our best like we got to do th- we got to do this we got to do that and 
Rip's just the positive guy uh, in that scenario. Well, uh, the final story about this is what's crazy is next day I go in for a heart exam, and turns out my uh, like my widowmaker is a hundred percent blocked. Hundred percent blocked. How the hell yeah. we survived the night? I don't know, but I th- we we gotta create Rip because I was like, Colin, you got something to say? Like, oh yeah, let's. And Colin jumps on it, so I make yeah. we're all crazy. So my cardiologist goes, what are you doing tonight? And I'm like, well, I got to coach another game. He goes, no, you're going to stay on the couch. You got some problems here. Yeah. So how we survive that night, I don't know. But we we, we got to credit you because Colin, he was feeding off me. And then yeah. <laughs> like we were, it was Warenberg and Warenberg and all of a sudden it we is. ripping. You might have had, somebody had to walk you to the hospital again. Oh, yeah. oh here we Luke go. Growl. Here Luke Growl, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, no, that that's something. I mean, that's a whole other story. I mean, being in the field that I am now, I mean, you I – mean, you shouldn't be alive. I mean, let, let's, should not be alive. Let's no. call a spade a spade here, and and with me and you feeding off each other, Rip was, was always, not a Rip good was scenario. always a common influence. He we'll was. Say that he was. He was a hundred percent. Not to mention the women loved him on the bench. So I mean, there was. I mean, we TJ, we would get done with the game, and you know, me and Pop are walking out, and there's nobody there. I mean, nobody wants to talk to us. We just look like. Two sour motherfuckers walking out. <laughs> and, That's a good description. Rip, Rip comes out of locker room and there's women flocking around Locked him. to Rip like, uh, what do you think, Rip? Like, yeah. <laughs> hey, whatever it takes, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I I don't remember all these women. I don't. Oh know. yeah. Oh, Rip, oh yeah. Just trust me, oh, they yeah. were there. They were there. I so, guess I just wasn't paying attention. Rip, let's talk about. We we mentioned her enough. Let's talk about your biggest accomplishment. Sandra. <laughs> yeah. She is. Uh, yeah, no <laughs> no doubt. Um, yeah, we started going out when I was in college. She, Her roommate dated a guy on the team, and so she came to some games as a sophomore when I was a sophomore, and, and we would see her out occasionally because we'd all be hanging out together. And so I kind of knew her before, asked her to go on a date, and – she said yes, surprisingly, because I had at the <laughs> yeah surprisingly at, surprisingly well because I at the time I had um, tried to dye dye my hair or frost my hair blonde like Vanilla Ice because it was the middle of the winter and my hair was dark like it is now it had turned into this red color so I and I had gotten my initials carved in my head so I go back to K State and I've got basically orangish red hair and my initials carved in my head and asked her out and she still said yes and um are you are you talking shit about orange red hair no i'm just i'm just saying it wasn't me it was so she had seen she had seen me all she had seen me for a year prior to that and all of a sudden i show up and i just kind of didn't look the same and she still agreed to go out with me and um yeah so we went out that spring got engaged that later that winter and um been together ever since and she uh yeah she was a saint all during baseball because it's just you know it's not easy like I said Pat you're at home she's at home by herself while I'm in spring training she's got to pack the car she's got to bring the dog she's got to get the map out and decide where she's driving and meet us is she not the prototype behind every great man is a great woman yeah. seriously yeah I mean I think of her oh, yeah. when I think of that 
No, she, she always she's, she's kind of your so shadow, but she's. I think she's probably she's probably definitely not going to come down now that we're no, no, she's about asleep it, by now. But she listening, yeah. <laughs> she, uh, yeah. So, so then, and then whatever I when you know, so she supported me all through the minor leagues, and she was the typical supporting wife in that. Man, you're not being treated fairly. You're you're you you could play in the big leagues, you know. But um, so she was great, and then when I said I wanted to coach, um. She was all in again, you know, great. Um, you can you can coach, you know, let's do this. And then when I said I want to be out of coaching, she was all in, you know, just anything I've wanted to do and pursue, she's, she's been, been there. She's yeah. been all in. Maybe. And then once once we had the kids and, you know, they started getting involved in stuff, she was all in on that, you know, like I'm uh, whatever we have to do to um, support them and – then when they got into high school and you have moms who take care of like the pregame meal and all that, she was, she was just, just always devoted to, uh, to me or to the kids. So I don't know. Can't ask for any more than, Oh yeah. More than that. You know, um, somebody told me a long time ago, um, when you're looking for a woman, you want somebody with a great smile and somebody that makes you smile. And, um, she, does that for me so you know wow <laughs> yeah so yeah yeah so we're pretty you know i'm obviously really fortunate but uh the two of us together pretty yeah pretty fortunate so yeah we survived a lot of ups and downs you know with baseball it can take its toll on you um with all the ups and downs and and mentally it it kind of wears you down and um you know somehow we survived all of that and um you know, and now, you know, we, we've been also fortunate in that even though I didn't make it to the big leagues as a player, I've gotten to work with all of these guys. And, and so we, we take a lot of pride in helping them and in watching them and still being involved with them. And, and some of them have turned into not just clients of mine, but some of our best friends. You know, um, a couple of my clients and their wives were at our daughter's wedding just just because Sandra and I have become that close to him, you right. know, and so um, yeah, it's been it's been a fun journey. Good run, yeah. Oh yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, and there's no. I know the term gets used a lot. Uh, the you know, like she's my better half, but truly she is my better half. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Two of my favorite people, one of my favorite couples. I mean, you can't get better than that. No, no, no. Cannot well, get and, better you than know, that. And I mean, she likes Manhattans, you know, like that. God, I don't know. I'm just really. I lucky. mean, if that's not love, yeah. I don't know what is. Yeah. I don't know what is. I know you've talked about it a little bit, but you said your clients. I mean, right now you're with Stiefel, right? Yes. So, and you have a lot of major league clients, don't you? Yeah, we have um, we probably have twenty to twenty five pro ball players. Now they range anywhere from guys who just got drafted last year to you know just two thousand twenty three draft all the way through uh, retired big league guys. Um, and so they kind of a broad range of where they're at in their career and what they need from us and so forth. But um, yeah, and then we have a handful of coaches, a couple managers, a couple scouts, and so forth. And we just do help them with financial planning or whatever it is that they need regarding finance, you know, depending on where they're at, um, kind of on their journey. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's awesome. It's, 
It's exciting. It's never dull because these guys lead some crazy lives and they're young guys getting a lot of money thrown at them. So it's oh, not, yeah. it's not always easy day to day, but, um, but it's, uh, it's always interesting. It's a challenge. So Brad, we got to tell the story. When the Boston Red Sox won the world series. Yeah. <laughs> you were part of this. Tell the story. It's one of the greatest stories ever. Uh, well, so, so, and he doesn't mind when I say that he's a client, but Mike Napoli is one of my clients. Um, and, um, man, been a, been a client for, um, almost 20 years now. I've been in the financial business, I guess, 24 and Nap probably came on board with me 18 years ago or, or something like that. And, um, one of those guys that he's grown into, um, into a really good friend. Um, but, um, he played for, uh, the Rangers in 2011 when the Cardinals beat them. David Freese was the MVP and, um, Knapp was basically one strike from being the world series MVP and David Freese snatched it from him and, uh, the Cardinals won and David Freese became the world series MVP. So then the next year Knapp's again with the Rangers. And then the next year Knapp signs a free agent deal with the Red Sox 2013. And, uh, so, um, they have a good year, get to the world series against the Cardinals and, I, um, because they were coming here to the World Series, I decided I didn't need to go to Boston for, for the World Series. You know, I could see Nap here, go to a couple games in St. Louis. I didn't need to make the trip out there to Boston. So if you remember how that series went, there was a couple crazy plays. Game game four ended in a crazy play. Was that the play at home plate or something? Yes, uh, interference. Like interference, interference at, at home yeah. plate. And the Cardinals win. And then game five they pick off um, the second baseman, Colt, Colt, Long. Colt Long. They pick him off at first base to end the game. And I'm, I'm sitting at home in our basement watching, and they pick him off to the Red Sox go up three to two. So now they've got a chance to win in Boston. And I mean, literally five minutes after the game, I'm like, I want to go to Boston. I, I want to go to Boston. Like if Knapp and the Red Sox are going to win, I want to be in Boston for it. And so I text him. He he had come in as a defensive replacement to play first because I think in that series he wasn't getting to play much because there was no DH in St. Louis, and so Ortiz was playing first base. But they took Ortiz out, so Knapp is the one who tags out Colton Wong. And five minutes later I'm texting him, dude, can you get me a ticket tomorrow or uh, two days from now in Boston if I can get out there? And he's like, yeah, no, you know, no problem. So I go upstairs and tell Sandra, hon, I'm going to Boston. And then again, she's the saint. She's just like, what, whatever, you know. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. So, so I go, and, um, and in that particular game, the Red Sox jumped out early and were kind of ahead the entire game. So it was not a nail-biter. It was pretty clear the Red Sox are going to win the World Series, and, and I'm there. I mean, it was just like a party. Starting about the fifth inning, the fans were just going crazy. And so – after the game, we're under the stadium. Nap comes out, says, "Come on, you know, come on." And, and so we go under the stadium. We're having a few beers under the stadium, and then Nap says, "All right, I'm going to shower up real quick." And then there's a back way where you go under the streets to one of the bars. I can't remember which one, a real popular bar, but you actually go a back way out of the clubhouse, which is underground. You go under one of the streets, and really? then you come up some steps inside the bar. And they had this section roped off for the Red Sox guys, and we're in it. 
we start drinking there. Then we go to another place. And um, at five in the morning, for sure. Oh shit! Well, that that was that was later. I wasn't with him when he did that. I I'm still so at five in the morning. I'm like, Nat, man, I gotta go. And he's like, Yeah, I I do too. Uh, my flight uh, I think was like at nine a.m. or eight a.m. Oh, oh shit! shit. And, and I said, I I've got to go. I still haven't checked out of my hotel. I haven't been back to the hotel since like four in the afternoon when I went to the ballpark. You know. So we leave the bar, we give each other a hug, he goes toward his apartment, I go toward my hotel, I get to the hotel, and I have this, I, I shower, get all my stuff packed, look at my watch, and have this brilliant idea of, hey, I can sleep 15 minutes before I have to take a taxi oh, to the airport. God. Well, yeah. two hours later, woke up, and I look, I'm like, you know, my flight's leaving right now you know and i'm in uh bed at the um at the hilton or wherever i was staying i don't know so um so i had to change my flight still got in that afternoon that night my daughter and caitlin knox they went as it, that was halloween night they went as mike napoli and um johnny gomes that was their <laughs> halloween costumes That's awesome so so later it's later that night i start seeing videos of nap shirtless <laughs> on the streets in Boston. Boston, yeah. And I come to find out he didn't even go back to his place. Like when we parted ways, he just stayed out. Had kind of like me, I had the brilliant idea to take a nap. He had the brilliant idea to stay out and was still going strong the next oh, evening. Shit. Quite a vendor, but uh yeah. A vendor. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But I think he he had a good time, and the people in Boston had a good time. Yeah. Oh he's, yeah. He's still a legend there, I think. <laughs> and then a few years later, he went to Cleveland, and then that's when everybody in Cleveland started um, wearing the party at Napoli's shirts. Um, and then he did something for charity with they sold him for charity or something. I don't know, but um, yeah, crazy, crazy good stuff. <laughs> Well, Rip, we appreciate you coming on and talking to us and sharing all these stories. I'm sure that we only touched the iceberg about <laughs> half of them. Yeah. Uh, iceberg is right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I still, either way, appreciate you. Appreciate you hosting us in this wonderful, I mean, if I had to build a bar, I mean, this would be it right here. <laughs> this yeah. is the Mecca. You'd have this to. This is the, the Mecca of bars. Well, you You'd know, like, Sandra designed, like, 98% of this house because she's an interior designer, and that's her deal, and I was completely fine with that. I just said, can I have a little say-so in the bar? And she said, yeah, and so this is, this is what we got. So, uh, yeah, and it's cool because – one of my high school teammates did the cabinetry. One of my high school teammates did the um, the bar top. Oh, wow. Um, one of my high school teammates did all the brick outside uh, or the, the stone. So, um, yeah, a lot of, a lot of my, awesome. lot of my buddies cool. were, were involved right. in doing this. Part. So, um, yeah, so it, it turned out good. We spend a lot of time down here when we have people over. It's a, it's a good place to sit and shoot the bull and talk sports. That's oh, for yeah. sure. It's always a good time when we're in the <laughs> we're in the rib always bar. Always a good time at the rib <laughs> yeah. bar. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. we appreciate you, and until next time. Awesome. Awesome. Thank Thanks you guys. A lot. I appreciate it. it. Rip, that was awesome. Oh my.
Good, man. Well, I'm glad you guys uh, think it was good. Uh, no, no, I, I was could good. talk all night about yeah, that's baseball the stuff. About, oh, my gosh. I look real good today. 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 Jumping out the mother Bentley. Rolling in a gossip new Balenci's. Walking with a pocket full of Benji's. I'm a 10 piece. I look real good today. 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 Dive in a light scuba. Mommy look good, she from Cuba. All white, like gold.